Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. So we're continuing today, excitingly, from where we left off last week. Last week, we talked a little bit about the obstacles to enlightenment. And we discussed how, somehow or other, you have found yourself in this room, surrounded by people who are very seriously, thank you Fabricio, on the quest. In one way or another, in some shape or form, everybody here is on the quest. And to some degree, while the traditions vary, while the language and vernacular vary, the goal tends to be rather similar. It's a movement away from what was familiar towards something unknown but promising, something that promises a betterness, an improvement, a new way of being and living and experiencing. And often we coin that uh, word for that destination. And the word varies, but it's usually something like enlightenment awakening. When the Buddha uh, stepped out of the grove in Bodh Gaya, he was asked by a small boy, are you, what are you? You know, not who are you, what are you? Are you an angel? Are you, are you Deva? He would have said, are you a Deva? Are you, are you uh, a god, a king? And, and, and the Buddha simply said, nay, 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 aham buddhasmi, I'm awake. You know, so whether you call it awakening, Buddha nature, whether you call it enlightenment, Brahma Jnana, Atma Bodha, knowledge of God, uh, self-realization, whether you call it Nirvana, Nivriti, the blowing out of all illusion, whether you call it salvation or to be saved, ultimately, there is some promise of a destination, a moment where the quest is consummated by the Holy Grail, if you will. So last week, we discussed five things that might be keeping you from finding that Holy Grail. And those five things were premised on the understanding that it isn't apart from you. It's not something you can have. It's not something you can get. It's simply relaxing into what you are. So we discussed last week the five obstacles to finding. The first of them is seeking. You know, the ultimate joke and the ultimate irony of spiritual practice is we start treating spirituality the way we treated everything else in our life. We were hankering after experience. We wanted, first and foremost, to have pleasurable experiences. Very quickly, we realize pleasure comes and goes and doesn't lastingly fulfill us. So we chase more and more rarefied pleasure. It was chocolate cake yesterday. Today, it will be the pleasure of a beautiful piece of music. Tomorrow, it will be the pleasure of some kind of sophisticated, subtle philosophical idea, whether it's intellectual titillation, cultural titillation, whether it's sensory titillation. We chase that first and foremost. And Finding uh, some sense of world wariness, Weltschmerz, the German word for it, beautiful word, in the objects of the world, we start to look for objects in the inner world in order to experience. So where before we were looking to titillate the senses, now we're looking to titillate our spiritual senses. We want a lucid dream. We want to see gods and goddesses. We want to experience pleasurable and rarefied states of meditation. But we find that while the objects are different, the process is similar. The fixation on experience. And sooner or later we find that whether it's sensory, 
intellectual, cultural, or spiritual, all objects come and go and do not bring lasting fulfillment. In fact, the opposite. It only intensifies our craving, makes us more and more desperate, what we call the desperation of the wealthy. You've seen that? You know, it's like they've uh, so saturated the senses that it's become a little difficult to taste and to smell and to hear. So the objects that they need in order to titillate those senses become more and more uh, rarefied. Um, <laughs> and there's a kind of desperation there because nothing is quite scratching the itch. So we turn away from objects in the world that pleasure us to objects in the spiritual world that pleasure us. And for some years, we're on the pleasure trip. And that keeps us from finding enlightenment. You know, then we go on the power trip. So if we think pleasure won't do it, we're like, okay, well, power will. Fame, fame will do it. You know, so we look for that in the world. And whether we're a top CEO, we've made the cover of all the magazines. We don't really find that fame or validation in the world. We look for it in our spiritual life. We want to be the guru. We want to be the teacher. We, we have this kind of uh, messiah complex. And by virtue of having experienced something sublime, you now feel like you have the authority to walk around and shake other people, trying to get them to awake. And it's all, it's all this, it's this power trip, you know. But even that becomes old after a while. Then maybe there's a security trip. And this one is far deeper. You look for money because you feel like it's going to give you some sense of security. It's going to take away this fear and uncertainty. You look for validation through fame because you feel like it's going to give you some sense of security, like you belong, like you are loved. And then finally, you look for spiritual things because you want some sense of security, some insurance against death. Don't worry, there's an afterlife can go and hang out with Rupi Kaur and sip some uh, milk and honey rivers, you know? <laughs> there's, there's some kind of security drive. But then when we find no amount of houses, no amount of cars, no amount of meditations, no amount of gurus, no amount of gurukulas can give us that sense of security, then and only then are we ready for enlightenment. Because only then are we ready to stop seeking. See, you cannot really stop seeking until you've come to the end of each trip. It's very hard to stop a trip before it's necessary disappointment, you know? So if you want fame, you must go and get it. And in fact, many of you have already had it and such that you now no longer desire it. And if you want power, you must go and get it. If you want security, you must go and get it. And when you become sickened by the things of the world, when you become nauseated by your quest of pleasure, for pleasure, for power, for security, then we can start to do some real work, you know? Until then... Um, you will continue to seek gurus that will give you siddhis. You'll continue to seek teachers that emphasize the various cravings that you have. You want power, you will gravitate towards these like powerful teachers that look like, you know, charismatic and powerful and you want a piece of that, you know. If you want pleasure, you'll gravitate towards gurus that seem ecstatic and you'll want a piece of that. If you want security, you will look for fathers, mothers in your gurus, you know. And you'll do that. You'll go on that quest for a while. And finally, whether through experience or through philosophical discernment, which arguably can only happen through experience, you tire of those things and then real spirituality begins. So Ramakrishna, peace and blessings be upon him, has this beautiful parable. When the child is busy with his toys, the mother is busy with her chores. You know, yeah. seeing that her child is perfectly content playing, perfectly occupied, she can go on with her work. The moment the child tires of her toys and starts to scream, Amma, 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 the mother will put down the chores and come running. You know, 
Welcome, Zeti. Welcome. And she'll come and scoop the child up. Like that, we are all infatuated with our worldly toys. Power, pleasure, fame, fortune, validation, all of that. And as long as we are playing with our toys, yes, Ryan, when the child is content with her iPad, as long as we're into the distractions of the world, the mother won't come. You know, and, and the game is quite fun. There are many inventive ways to play this game of life. So it's important to be honest with yourself. What are you in this for? Are you in this for more pleasure, for more power, for more fame, for more fortune? Because here's the thing, you will get all of those things. The surest way to satisfy your cravings is to meditate. Hence the transcendental meditation movement. Hey! <laughs> Hi, Beth. And when uh, criticized, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was criticized for teaching uh, Westerners this kind of uh, materialistic meditation. And they, they asked him, why, uh, Maharaj, why do you go to America and teach Americans to become more productive at work? Why do you teach them? No worries, Beth, it's okay. Why do you teach them to become um, better in their relationships and better uh, in their sex lives and all of that? It seems like such a far cry from, from the project of enlightenment, you know, from escaping the wheel of birth and death. And Maharishi Mahesh, peace and blessings be upon him, said very beautifully, Brothers, I give them what they want so they might come to want what I want to give them. And see, what we want to give is something that you will only want when you're finished wanting with all the other things, you know? So by all means, play. If you want lucid dreaming, go and do that. You know, if you want uh, a certain number of followers on Instagram, go and find out how to do that. Because honestly, here's the funny thing. Conquering a kingdom is arguably simpler and less taxing than the work that we're about to do. <laughs> you know, they say to uh, create an empire in the world is child's play. The real work, the real heroism is storming the inner citadels of anger and craving. Overcoming worldliness is a much harder task than subjugating nations. <laughs> so if you still want to be an emperor, please go. Go on the Alexander trip, right? <laughs> One of your children is there. Go on that trip, you know, and then come back. So the, the first thing that gets in the way to our spiritual yearning, uh, did, did my sound... Yes, my sound changed. I, I hit turn on original sound. I'm learning to be better, God willing, at the audio thing. <laughs> I hope it's better. Presumably it's better. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yes, good. So um, the first obstacle to spiritual questing is mistaking what this game is about. You know, it's, it's thinking that this is another way to meet your craving for objects of experience. And as Ellen Watts rightly says, enlightenment, uh, yes, it was, it was louder, I believe. Okay, I'll speak up. <laughs> enlightenment is the ego's last disappointment because enlightenment is the recognition that um, no object of experience, however rarefied, uh, oh, too much bass, Fabricio, you want it like this? This is better? Okay, we do this, <laughs> okay. So no amount of object hankering, object craving will scratch the itch. So you become a little less interested in objects and a little more interested in the subject of experience. The one who is experiencing as opposed to the thing being experienced. So the moment you realize enlightenment is about relaxing into what you are as opposed to finding some new rarefied thing to enjoy, that's when spirituality begins. You know, that's when you can start to live in true recognition of what you are. 
So that was the first obstacle. Then, of course, we had a slew of other obstacles. Um, the second one was not being in the body. This uh, aversion to interacting with the totality of this moment. So one of the dangers of the path of jnana yoga or philosophy, it's what we do together, is there's a lot of armchair jnanis. A lot of philosophers who are seduced by our languaging. This is the direct path. This is the new and easy method. You don't have to do anything. You merely have to relax into what you already are. All it takes is one insight. All this kind of language is very seductive um, when you don't want to do any work, <laughs> when you want to opt out of spiritual discipline. Yes, <laughs> the quick and easy is the dark side. Yes, truly. So jnana can be a very armchair thing that you do in the evening, seated in your chair, reading Ramana. Uh, and for that moment, while you're reading the book, while you're at the lecture, you can really fool yourself into believing that you are a jnani, like a, a knower of truth, fully enlightened. I am not the body. I am not the mind. I am awareness in which the body and mind vibrate. I look around and I see this world for what it is. Maya, it has no power of... And you're doing all of this and suddenly your tax consultant calls you, oh, back up with holdings, you're broke. And gone is all that philosophy. Gone is all the jnana. Stub your toe as Ryan will tell you, and immediately you will lose your enlightenment. What kind of enlightenment is that that is susceptible to the stubbing of the toe? So the next obstacle is being too attached to your concepts and mistaking the concepts for the thing to which those concepts point. So you can become very attached to belief systems, to a sense of identity, uh, and all of that is a, a delusion insofar as you don't ground in the body. So when you start to do asana, you start to realize how flimsy your fearlessness really is. Because then you're told to go into a headstand and there's fear, there's great trepidation. But what happened to your jnana? What happened to I am not the body, I am not the mind? So in a way, the mind can be very deceptive. The body generally doesn't lie. You know, it's, it, there's a little more tamas in the body. So working with the body, working with asana, doing sema'a, you know, the Sufi dance, working with qigong or, or tai chi quan or tai chi chuan, all of these things are good ways uh, to accept the totality of the moment. See, until you can see the mother in her totality, you will only see aspects of her and thus disrespect her uh, because you refuse to accept her in totality, you see. Um, you're only looking at her feet or her one toe. But it's only when you come into the body that you can see the, the full picture. So the second obstacle was being too attached to thoughts and emotions. We fix that by adding new coordinates to awareness. So where before everything to you was thoughts and emotions, now just add feeling in the feet. Now just add breath awareness. Now add uh, smell, sound, taste uh, all of these things broaden your experience of the now, and that is a powerful tool for enlightenment. The next one was inconsistency. The biggest obstacle to your practice is not practicing every day no matter what, you know. And there are so many beautiful stories in India of people who refuse to miss a single day of their practice no matter what the consequence was. There's one very nice story about a king who was so devoted to his ritual worship, his puja, that even when the kingdom was being attacked by an invader, and the story is an enemy king knew about this king's devotion. He knew that at the hour of Arathi at seven something, when the sun was setting, this enemy king knew that our king would be praying, so he chose that time to attack. And true enough, our king went into the room to pray, and the king's minister shows up and says, uh, 
Raj, there's there's an enemy at, at the gate. Quick, pray later. Defend the kingdom now. And the king said, no, my duties to the world um, are subordinate to my duties to God. And so he sat and he prayed. And it turns out, as the story tells us, when the enemy king approached the kingdom, suddenly a young man, bluish in complexion, rode a horse out to meet the enemy king and smote the opposing army single-handedly. Of course, the enemy king, being of this culture, realized who the blue boy on the horse was and became a disciple of that king, you know? So the idea is that when you take care of your spiritual life, the world will take care of itself. As it says in the Bible, find God first and these two will be added unto you. So the idea is you might want to sleep. Like, oh, it's already 11.30. I'm going to skip my meditation today. It would really be better if I slept, right? No. No, you must develop the kind of tenacity, what we call is titiksha, spiritual forbearance, to never drop a single day of practice, to increase in quantity and quality every day. So that was the third obstacle, inconsistency. The fourth obstacle was compartmentalization, restricting your spiritual life only to the hour of being on the mat, of being on the prayer cushion, of being in meditation, of sitting with the book. There needs to be an overspill, meaning once you leave the yoga studio, you must see driving home from the studio as still part of that practice. You must see sitting down to dinner with the family as still part of that practice. Because then what's going to happen is the moment you take the hat off, you're going to go back into all of your own patterns. Remember, the purpose of spiritual practice was to give you a foothold outside of the uh, tyranny of concepts you live in. So right now, you're burdened by these concepts of who you think you are and who you think the world is. Spiritual practice is your daily experience of something outside of that. That's all it is. Whether you're meditating, whether you're praying, whether you're doing asana, your practice just gives you a foothold in a way of being that's different, that's separate from the one that you're used to. If you don't do this every day, you won't be stable in that alternative way of being. And if you only do this in a compartmentalized way, again, you won't be stabilized in this way of being. If you practice consistently, and really if you practice all the time by resisting compartmentalization, then sooner or later, you will learn to live, not just visit, this place outside of thoughts and concepts. Hmm? Finally, yes, modern life is so prone to divide, as Jana says, and categorize everything. Exactly. And so we must allow for this overspill. And the final obstacle we discussed together last week was refusing to engage with the world. You know, if all you can speak about is crystals and scriptures, um, then your spirituality will be hamstrung. Because ultimately, the goal of spirituality in, in, in the way that we've been discussing it is to turn samsara into nirvana, to make manifest in every moment of life the divine to see through the eyes of Shiva, so to speak, to open the Shiva's eye, so to speak. Um, and that requires the ability to sit at a sports bar watching the Seattle Seahawks game and finding that to be as divine as praying at the altar. That's when you've completed your spirituality, you know. <laughs> but this, of course, is the final level. In the beginning of your spirituality, you should do everything to avoid worldliness. But the consummation of your spirituality is the absolute absence of worldliness, even in the worldliest of situations. Okay, so much for recap. 
These are the five obstacles to enlightenment. Today, we're going to do something a little different, very exciting. We're going to talk about the seven tools for a spiritual life. It's going to be kind of the inverse of last week's discussion. Um, and you might notice a few contradictions. And I hope during our questions and answers uh, segment of today's class, we can help work out some of those contradictions, tease out the kernels of truth that can only occur in moments of tension. You know? Okay. Now, before we do the seven tools for a spiritual life, uh, again, let's revisit our notions of enlightenment. What is it? What is it to be enlightened? Very difficult thing to describe because in truth, it is the one thing that can never be turned into a concept. The Jewish mystics knew this when they refused to give a speakable name for God. Because what is language but confining things into the narrow confines of concepts? As Fabricio says, language has a limiting effect. It locks things into subject-object predicate. It locks things into duality. So how can you express that which transcends duality, that which transcends logic, that which is outside thinking, so to speak, uh, with logic, with thinking? Yes, and even then, with music, there are some uh, 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 difficulties there when melodies uh, are constrained to time and rhythms are cyclical. And all of it has the ability to point beyond. But the Jewish mystics were very careful to uh, guide you away from that by just saying, yod heh vav heh, unspeakable. Can't pronounce it. Unpronounceable name of God. The Islamic mystics were very careful to emphasize that Ahla could not be captured in iconography. You know, except for beautiful Quranic verses. You know, you've seen the Sufi art, how they arrange the Quranic verses to make images. Um, but the Islamic mystics want to avoid that. Uh, yoga, time and time again, says this is not a belief. This is not a concept. This is an experience. As Swami Vivekananda would say, if there is a God, I must see her. If there is a religion, I must realize it. You know, it's about firsthand direct experience. It's non-conceptual. It's immediate as we discussed last week, it's aparoksha jnana, immediate. Um, and as such, is hard to say uh, in any terms other than mysterious ones. You know how last week we talked a little bit about how, yes, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao. He who speaks of it knows it not, and who, he who remains silent knows it. Yes. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here, Grace. I wish you were in the house. I, I, I miss that. Okay, so... It seems like we, we've got quite the predicament. Here we are trying to describe enlightenment, but it's the one thing that eludes all descriptions that can be only kind of hinted at via negation. And last week, we talked a lot about that process known as neti neti, not this, not that. Um, but for now, let's just offer this functional definition of enlightenment. Enlightenment is the stable, continuous experience of being. A being that is not dependent on the objects of awareness. It's resting or relaxing or reposing. Beautiful word we use in this tradition, vishranti. Vishranti means to repose. It's like a, like settling into your favorite chair, so to speak. It's that stable experience of no longer needing objects of experience to fulfill you because you've already found the maximum amount of fulfillment. Essentially, it's when you're able to say, what more can I want? <laughs> uh, second working definition of enlightenment. So enlightenment is the end of all craving. The second definition of enlightenment, and this is perhaps more uh, 
Beautiful. The end of all fear. Enlightenment is when you can genuinely and sincerely say to yourself, I am unafraid. Come disease, come death, come grief, come despair. I no longer fear these things. It's living without consequences. Imagine the tremendous freedom of actually feeling with every fiber of your being that whatever happens, it's all going to be okay. The house can burn down, cancer can strike, muscle dystrophy can lose your loved ones, and there will be grief. There will be pain, but there won't be suffering. So enlightenment is the end of all suffering, as the Buddha described it. It's the end of all fear, as Gaurapada described it in the Mandukya Karaka. And here's another, perhaps, functional working definition. Enlightenment is when you are acting from a completely different set of motives. You know, it's that moment where your actions are coming from a different place. Where before... Uh, yes, Teresa. And we're going to talk about how you can have grief and pain without suffering in a little bit. It's actually the first tool of a spiritual life. Enlightenment is when you are able to rest in the fullness of being without fearing consequences, knowing that they have nothing to do with you. And most importantly, acting from a completely different place than the one you're used to acting from. So previously, you might have been acting from a place of self-preservation, self-aggrandization, and self-propagation. So these were the three pillars of every action. So if you analyze each action, you will see either it's motivated by the desire to self-preserve, either it's motivated by the desire to self-aggrandize, or it's motivated by the desire to self-propagate. And where do those three desires come from? Ultimately, the fear of death. Uh, and Anisha and I were discussing on a Thursday night lecture how everything that we do is informed to some degree by this fear of death. We're so unsettled about the idea that we are body will die, mind will die. In fact, we are so scared of death, we're not allowed to talk about it at the dinner table. We use clever pseudonyms to avoid confronting the fact that everyone we love is going to die and that you are going to die. <laughs> and you know, philosophy and spiritual life begins with this recognition and begins with the distaste for the world of lies in which you have been thrown that prevents you from seeing this for yourself. It's a tremendous fear that lurks in the background of everything that we do. We're looking for a legacy because we're looking for immortality. We spend lots of money on vitamins. <laughs> vitamins, Grace. As America, if I say vitamins, the Americans won't understand. So vitamins. Grace always makes fun of me. But you are more British than me, Grace. My ancestors built railways for your ancestors. If you make fun of my British accent, you're making fun of... <laughs> Joking. Just all love, all love. No love lost. No, but you see... Um, the idea that we are afraid of death often doesn't factor in. But when we look, why are we trying to get so many followers? Why are we um, obliterating uh, the mind with as many um, stimulants and, and, and intoxicants as we can find? And all of it is weirdly a contradictory quest to eliminate the mind and also a fear of the mind ending by virtue of the body ending. So because we know death is coming, deep down inside we're afraid of death, we're unsettled about it. We act in three ways. We try to self-preserve. Actually, that's the main thing. We try to self-preserve. And in the, the act of self-preservation, there are two other prongs. Self-aggrandization. Maybe if I make myself bigger, I'm less likely to die. So I want to be famous. I want to be rich. I want to be powerful. I want to be strong. Because then I might not die. 
Again, hubris, Ozymandias, Rex, and Shelley, and all that, you know. Then self-propagation. I might be able to live on if I can, like, reproduce. <laughs> Whether through making art or through making children or some, some form of self-propagation into the future. This obsession with legacy. So these are your three motives to act. And most of us don't consider that there could be other motives, you know. So at this juncture, start to introspect. Start to look, welcome, Yash. Start to look at all of your actions and consider, where is this coming from, you know? Is this coming from a place of fear, fear of death, ultimately? Abhinivesha, we say in this tradition. And if so, does it carry with it the mark of, I need to do this because it will keep me alive. I need to do this because it will make me more famous or, or, or aggrandize me. And I need to do this because it improves my reproductive ability. <laughs> and after a while, you realize you are not the author of your actions at all. You think you are free. Yet, what are you free to do but to follow the impulses of self-aggrandization, self-propagation, and ultimately self-preservation? Are you not a pawn in the game of biology? Does this not offend you? Aren't you finished with the tyranny of biology over your lives? Aren't you finished with the anxiety of chasing self-preservation, knowing it to be futile? Aren't you finished with the anxiety of chasing self-aggrandization, knowing that no amount of validation will give you the love that you seek? And aren't you finished once and for all with this lust, this desire to propagate yourself, knowing that it is a thirst that only becomes deeper with every sip? <laughs> so... Why then do monks take vows of chastity and poverty? Simply because this is the best way to spit in the face of the dragon. Oh yeah? You want to crack the whip and make me seek power, money, and sexual craving? Fine. I'm not going to. Nuh-uh. <laughs> so this is an act of radical reclamation of your power. To simply say, as Rosa Parks did before us, peace and blessings be upon her, no. <laughs> No, biology, I will not sit in the back of your bus because I know where it's headed and it's headed to death. <laughs> mm. So, there is a story, and this is a very funny story, uh, and I love it deeply. It's, it, it's the story of Lord Shiva taking the form of Nataraja, the Lord of Dance. So Shiva, as you know in this tradition, is a metaphor for yoga, king of the yogis. Yogaraj, Yogeshwar, the lord of the yogis. So Shiva in the iconography and myth surrounding this deity is, is a placeholder for yogic culture and yogic traditions. And so studying Shiva can give you a lot of insights into the culture of yogis. So there's one story in which Shiva is observing the rites and practices of the Brahmins, the priests, you know, the priestly elite of ancient India. And they were using ritual for material ends. In other words, their exoteric religion was more interested in propagating the self, aggrandizing the self, and preserving the self. They were using religion as a way to dominate the world. So Shiva decided to play a little prank. You know, Shiva is a little bit of a Dionysus figure. So he incarnates as a beautiful, youthful yogi, and he walks into a village of Brahmins. Now, as you know, Shiva always has a raging erection. But... It's never, he doesn't like to spend any of that semen. He's the ultimate ascetic, the ultimate celibate. Um, and it takes a lot for the goddess Parvati to like draw him into a householder life. As Ryan knows very well from studying the Devduk Patanayak work. So anyway, Shiva um, takes this form of a handsome young Dionysian man and he strides into the village. 
And of course, all the wives of the Brahmins, overcome with infatuation for this handsome young man, run trying to clutch at him, you know, to the sh- to shaming their husbands. So Shiva, of course, eludes all the women and escapes into the forest. The Brahmins, absolutely livid with the way this young man has shamed them, decide to attack him. So they set up a fire, a yagna, and they practice the, the mantras, they recite it, and summon three creatures. The first is a ferocious, uh, uh, sorry, a, a goblin, a, a, a stunted and an evil thing, a ferocious goblin. The second is a tiger, like an evil, bloodthirsty, curdling roar tiger. The third is a serpent, a serpent of illusion, you know. And the three creatures chase Shiva in the forest. They all pounce on Shiva at the same time. And this is what happens. With one deft stroke of his, li- of his wrist, Shiva flays the tiger, skins the tiger, and wraps the tiger skin around his loins. He catches the snake and throws it around his neck, making friends with it. And he jumps on the goblin's back and starts to do a dance. <laughs> and this is the dancing Shiva, the Nataraj. Now, the goblin represents self-preservation desire to stay alive. Shiva jumps on that. The same way Mikael in the Christian faith steps on the head of the serpent, so too does Shiva dance on the goblin. You know, Not only is Shiva subjugating the goblin, he's dancing on it. You know, He's making fun of it, so to speak. <laughs> yes, thank you, RJ. It is. There he is. Nataraj. Now, of course, Nataraj has, uh, and, and, and the, the goblin is self-preservation. The uh, tiger is self-propagation, like lust, desire, and craving. He wears it around his loins to show that he's conquered that aspect of himself. And finally, the snake. This is a pretty loaded metaphor because the snake represents magic and sorcery. And his friendliness with it is perhaps a reference to like, his acceptance of magic or his ability to maybe his endorsement of tantra maybe or siddhis as a tool for spiritual practice the snake also represents illusion and so it could be a reference to the cultural illusions we buy into so shiva is no longer subjugated by it he wears it as an ornament why the spiritual master doesn't retreat from society the spiritual master uses the, the culture as a canvas to paint their images of god you know So we make friends with society and we play. We play with society. So this metaphor of Shiva is a metaphor of enlightenment. Yoga eventually gives you mastery over these three motives. It frees you from them. You will dance on the goblin of your fear of death. You know, you will make peace with the various cultural concepts that you feel so oppressed by. And most of all, you will no longer fear the or or, or be driven by the ferocious and ever-hungry tiger of desire. You know, you've conquered life, so to speak. So then what happens? Once you've conquered these three motives, what happens? Well, you're free. Free to do what? Here is the ultimate irony. You thought you were free, realized you were only free to follow your impulses, you subjugated your impulses, and now you act by the divine will. So suddenly a new motive emerges in your life, and your life is taken over by something else. Uh, let's not say more words here. You know? You'll know it when you find it. You will be moved by the divine breath. Thinking nothing of your own needs, you will simply go where the divine breath directs you. You will do what the divine breath 
demands you do. Not my will, but thy will be done. I can of my own self do nothing. What I, my works that I do, the Father does through me. And then life takes on an effortless quality, a fearless quality, a relaxed quality, an elegant quality, but most of all, an effortless quality. The life is living itself, so to speak. The work is doing itself. And you, the whole time, are just sitting in a place of relaxed joy, acceptance, love, um, and nothing left to do, nowhere left to go. It's all happening through you, not by you. Okay, so let's offer the final definition of enlightenment. Enlightenment is the ability to act from a different set of motives than biology and culture. Enlightenment is freedom, the ultimate freedom, the uh, experience of being your own person, you know. So let's say that. Let's say now, having learned what enlightenment is, or at least getting a glimpse into what enlightenment could be, glimpsing the possibilities that are there for you, when you decide to live a spiritual life, what you are saying is, I am going to live my life in such a way as to be committed to nothing short of this ideal. I am going to live my life in such a way that I attain to this freedom, knowing full well that it is possible to do so. You live in a world of masters whose very life is a living testament to what it is we are talking about tonight. You might have met in your own life such beings. You might know of them through stories. You might intuit the existence of a state like this. But whatever said and done, you feel drawn to this goal. In fact, this is the only game in town, as Christopher Wallace says. In one way or another, you're seeking your freedom. You're seeking truth. You're seeking the fountainhead of beauty. You know, and uh, you're seeking, most importantly, yourself. You're seeking the answer to the question, who am I? All your activities in life are merely ways to get some insight into that final answer. And so you will be drawn into this life, like we said last week, unconsciously. Whether you know it or not, eventually you will find yourself in a room like this, surrounded by people like this, uh, doing this work together. So what does it mean to live a spiritual life? It means to orient yourself around this goal. You know, you've kind of, you're, you're to some degree over going to the club every night, you know. Although you still might do that. Although you still might continue to habitually and mechanically do the things you did before, your heart's just not in it anymore. Do you know what I mean? It just doesn't feel as real anymore. Like going to the club isn't as exciting as it used to be. Uh, spending all night playing cards. Yes, Fabricio. They don't accept. For the, Fabricio shows up and they see your adhikara and they're like, no, 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 you're not allowed to come in here. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, after a while, you're just playing snaps with your friends or something like playing games of cards and you realize we're all just wasting time and the life has gone out of it you know you've just you, you might still be trying to climb the corporate ladder but it just doesn't feel that important that real because something in you has changed there's a shift a reorientation in your life away from the things that you were seeking before and now towards this new thing this new way of being this promise of freedom so to speak so that's what it means to live a spiritual life to live a spiritual life is to commit yourself to the quest for truth, the quest for beauty, the quest for freedom, and dare we say it, the quest for enlightenment. You know. So at this juncture, let's just pause and clarify what we're in this for. And all the side quests, yes. Uh, object hunting, right? The NPC needs your help. Let's go on an object retrieval quest. <laughs> all the side roads we can take 
Um, and eventually you're on this path whether you know it or not. Now the question to ask is, where are you on this path? To what degree have you decided to pursue your goal? Why are you here tonight? And what do you hope to get out of all of this? What can this drunken monkey do for you? What can the other people in this room do for you? Um, and what do you want of yourself? Now, importantly, wherever you are on the journey is exactly where you should be on the journey at exactly the time you need to be there. So if you're in this for siddhis, if you're in this for just a little relaxation at the end of a Monday, it's perfectly fine. You know, now the degree to which you will experience your own attainment, the degree to which you will be able to relax into the veracity of life, vishranti, the degree to which you can repose in the joy and ineffable bliss of being is the degree to which you pursue this goal intensely. Here's a paradox, yes? Pursuing a goal that is always with you. But the degree to which you do it, what you put in to a large extent is what you get out. Now the question is, are you willing to pay the price? You know, do you want to go on this journey? Knowing full well at the end, you will die as Ram Dass points out, right? That everything you know about yourself, that everything you know about the world, that every motive you had to act before this, all of that will be consumed by the fires of knowledge. Do you want that actually? <laughs> and you know what the funny thing is? You can't not want it. You know, there's no choice. You will be drawn into this fire. The only question is, how much do you want to delay? How long do you want to tarry? And the funny thing is, there's no rush. Tarry for as many lifetimes as you want, you know. Delay as long as you want. Seek the things that you want. Eventually, you will come to the point at which you no longer want what you thought you wanted. And now you want what we want you to want, which is the ending of all want. <laughs> And then you can finally listen to that 303 album, Want, and you'll understand it as the spiritual masterpiece that it is. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the next part of this lecture, yeah, I know a friend made it for me. It's very funny. <laughs> the next part of this lecture will concern how to live a spiritual life. You know, what things ought you implement right away in order to live a life in the spirit, so to speak. And the funny thing is, you're all already doing it. Otherwise, there would be no reason, there'd be no motivation to spend hours on a Monday night together, drunk on the wine of spirit. We hand it out liberally here, and we're all drunkards here, drinking freely, uh, conversing all through the night, staying up late to discuss philosophy and talking about death. Um, why? Isn't that insane? Don't you have work in the morning? Sun will rise and Fabricio will still be here, you know? <laughs> and it's all for free. Why do we do this? Um, nobody's getting paid. Nobody is uh, um, getting off, so to speak. Um, so why do we do it? And it's because to some degree, we are all being drawn into a more serious, perhaps a more involved life in the spirit. We're all being turned away from the previous motivations, the, the worldliness that we're so accustomed to, and we're being turned towards a new way of being, a new way of living, and a new way of relating to ourselves and most importantly to others. And so here are seven tools that will concern those who want to go on this trip, you know. And I just want to pause, take a breath, to take a moment to introspect, to feel into where we are on this trip. You know, do we really want to go the rest of the way? 
And if so, are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to actually do it? And what's the price? The price is honesty. The price is truth. Are you really willing to surrender all your cherished assumptions, your notions about yourself in the world? You will find as you continue along this path that it's easier said than done. You know, that as you continue, you will invite into your life to some degree catastrophe. Of course, I'm a Shaiva. So as a Shaiva, I'm obviously going to be a very funerary in my, in my uh, uh, delivery of this material. If you want something a little more sugar-coated, there are Vaishnavas out there. Go and find them. But uh, ours is the way of Kali and the way of Shiva, the way that says sooner or later, you will be torn asunder in the sense that all the, way- <laughs> all the ways in which you thought this world was built around you, in which you thought your personality was constructed, all will be deconstructed. As uh, Swami Paramahansa Yogananda, peace and blessings be upon him, says, the guru is someone who makes you feel horrible. Yet, you go to that person every day. What is the logic there? Because you sense that there is something you're being drawn into that is way better than feeling good all the time. You know, and uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, peace and blessings be upon him, described it as the Guru's function is to find cavities in your mouth and break the teeth off. You know, it's kind of like pulling teeth in a way. So what will happen is you are going to look at your life honestly. You know, yes, a true friend is the one who tells you there's something in your teeth. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Shiva story. And I hope you'll share it later, Casey. But you see, Arjuna, Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita is being confronted with Shiva. You know, he's on the battlefield. Here's Arjuna's predicament. He has to go to war against people that he loves. So here's the, it's, it's, it's mind boggling. His dharma, his duty in life is calling for a course of action that not only violates his code as a kachatriya, as, as, a, as a person of the warrior caste, but also violates his code as a familial figure. See, he owes fealty to his teachers. As a kachatriya, he knows that he can't kill his teachers and kill his ancestors. As a human, in a relationship with brothers and cousins, he knows he can't kill his brothers. Yet, His life is demanding that he do just that. Do you see how all of Arjuna's notions of himself are being challenged? All of Arjuna's notions of the world are being challenged. You know, that's spiritual life. And it's not just Arjuna, mind you. Outside the Bhagavad Gita and and the rest of the Mahabharata, Krishna is always playing tricks on people, right? Yudhishthira is asked to lie. Like, let me remind you who this character is. Yudhishthira is the literal son of ethics. He is the son of law incarnate. So Yudhishthira, um, his very nature is to be honest and truthful. Yet, what does Krishna ask him to do? Krishna asks him to lie. Ashwatthaman is dead, is the lie that Yudhishthira tells Drona. They know the only way to kill Drona is to break his heart. You know, else the war will rage on and people will die. A bit of utilitarianism, I know, I'm sorry. But uh, Krishna comes by and says to Yudhishthira, you must tell a lie. Fortunately for Yudhishthira, Bhima does a little trick. He kills an elephant named Ashwatthaman. Um, and so Yudhishthira is able to say somewhat truly, Ashwatthaman is dead. Of course, Drona thinks his son is dead. No, Yudhishthira is talking about the elephant Ashwatthaman. But he spoke those words with the intention of convincing Drona that his son died. And that's how they killed Drona. So why would Krishna 
like God incarnate, ask law incarnate to lie? Why would God incarnate ask Arjuna, the warrior paragon of his time, to violate his warrior code, to violate his familial duty? Because that's exactly right, Fabricio. Spiritual life demands this of you. Are you ready? Are you ready to eat a cheeseburger as a vegan if your guru asks you to do so? <laughs> Are you ready to leave behind all familiarity in your life? Now, it's funny, and Grace points this out beautifully. Yes, it was good to see you today, Lauren. Thank you for coming to Tony. Thank you. Bye, Lauren. Yes. I had the lovely pleasure of seeing Lauren in person today, which I hope we'll all get to do at some point. Now, um, the question is, are you really interested in spirituality? You know, because this is what it is, confronting the things that you took to be true to fully investigate whether it will stand the test of truth. Because truth is not a concept, it's a way of being. And this way of being will not tolerate any illusion. The illusion of the self, the illusion of society, all of it will be ripped asunder by the ecstatic drunken dance of Kali reeling, you know, Shiva stomping. My mother destroys entire planets with one flick of her uh, toe, you know. Her glittering toe ring spells the destruction of entire aeons. Ah, how exquisite. So that's, that's the task ahead of us. Yudhishthira will be asked to lie. Arjuna will be asked to kill uh, family members. And you, in your own way, will be asked to surrender cherished ideals of yourself and the world around you. It is a deconstructive process, a destructive process almost. And you have to be kind of crazy to want this. <laughs> Holy madness, we call it. Now, um, I'm happy Grace said this thing about father and mother because in the Bible, Christ, peace and blessings be upon him, says beautifully, he whosoever loves father and mother more than me cannot follow me. I mean, how jealous, right? If you love mommy and daddy, if you're a mommy's girl, mommy's boy, you're not going to be my friend. You know, like what? What is Jesus on about? Okay, obviously the Christ, peace and blessings be upon him, is not talking about the body, mind or personality known as Jesus. Obviously not. The reason we know that is because in other parts of the Bible, Jesus makes such statements as, before Abraham was, I am. What? Linguistically, that doesn't make sense. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was around. No, he says, before Abraham was, I am, present tense. And the idea there is, of course, he wasn't talking about the body. He wasn't talking about his mind. He was talking about, I am presence, eheye. The same name of God that was spoken unto Moses by the burning bush, you know. So when you come into spirituality, I'm sorry, there's fire all over the place. You can't get away from fire. You light candles every day because you long like a moth to exp explore that flame, you know. <laughs> You're all obsessed with destruction and you seek it in alcohol and drugs and, and TV shows. But here's the real thing. <laughs> So one way or another, you're drawn into this. So this is, yeah, the, this is fine meme with the dog. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So what does Jesus mean when he says he who, who loves uh, father and mother more than me is not fit to follow me? Obviously this, have you noticed the other day I was flunking, see, I'm trying to keep my visa via uh, school, you know, being in school. Yes, of course, Roxanne, we'll, we'll certainly be here you know, until the sun rises in Fabricio's place. And Jana's place. You see, um, as, as, as this boy was flunking out of music school, there was a thought, you know, oh, 
You can't fail out of music school. What will your parents think? You know, you see, inside each of us, there is a voice, a conditioned voice of mom and dad. Even if mom and dad or guardian don't actually say those things, the voice is still there. We're afraid we'll lose the love of our family if we act in certain ways. You know, if we don't become a doctor, and most people, Asian people in the room know, if you don't become a doctor or a lawyer, um, your parents won't speak to you. So there's that voice goading you to do things you otherwise might not want to do, you know. So that's a sign that you love father and mother more than yourself, more than that still small voice in your heart, the I am presence, which might demand of you a different course of action. It's a very strong voice, Ryan. Oh, yes, it's funny. In the beginning, the voice of mother and father is stronger. And it's not your actual mother and father. It's the mother and father in your head, you know, and that mother and father in your head, that's the thing that ruins your relationship with your actual mother and father, who otherwise might be great friends and spiritual allies, profound teachers, people that you can practice your spirituality with, as we're going to see in a little bit. Uh, visiting your parents is one of the best tools for spiritual practice, as we'll see. But you see, um, otherwise, allies are turned into enemies because there's that voice in your head that stifles the voice in your heart. The I am voice the presence that you feel in you, that urge towards creative expression, to living a life a little outside the mainstream uh, narratives, uh, coloring outside the box, like that voice, that still small voice is in the beginning very loud. You know, when you're a child, it's the loudest thing. Uh, and you live by virtue of that voice. You act not through self-preservation, not through self-propagation, uh, not through self-aggrandization. You act just from that different motive that we were talking about. And then suddenly somewhere along the way, the parental voice, the societal voice gets a little louder and it snuffs out the still small voice. And then one day you will be in a hotel room, some fancy Ritz-Carlton. You'll be in the bathroom of the hotel room at the absolute top of your game, wealthy beyond compare. And you'll be in that bathroom with a gun in your mouth, ready to end it all uh, because you abandoned that still small voice. But right as you're about to pull the trigger, it will come back, you know. It will always come back at that point when you are truly broken. See, in Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, it was when Siddhartha was ready to plunge into the river and drown himself that the voice returned, that the bird began to sing again, the bird that was killed by too much pleasure, too much worldliness. So a lot of you are here, exactly, Grace, and I hope you will read us that poem later. It's a beautiful poem. Grace is a poet, and uh, we're very blessed to have a, a Rumi amongst us. Peace and blessings be upon him and her. So um, that voice is the, the voice that brought you here. It's the voice that brings you to the mat every day. And it's a voice that everybody will recover when they are truly broken by life. Unfortunately, some of them only hear that voice on the deathbed. But fortunately, many of us hear it way before. So that voice, that I am voice, is what the Christ, peace and blessings be upon him, is obviously referring to. When you love the voice of your conditioning more than this voice deep down inside, you are not living in spirit. But when you start to prioritize your own inner call to divinity at the expense or especially when it's contradictory to the voice of father and mother, that's when you're truly on the spiritual path. You see, a lot of us now are able to be in two worlds. You're still good boy, good girl, good person, but you're spiritual. Soon, the fork in the road will occur. Soon, your spirituality will cause you to no longer be seemly to your parents, to your friends. And for a time, you will fear losing their love. 
You know what's going to happen, though? Here's the irony. Um, as Jack Cornfield says, my parents hate it, hate it when I'm a Buddhist, but they love it when I'm a Buddha. The irony is, if you follow that still small voice at the expense of the parental voice, you'll have a great relationship with your parents. They'll just love you. They'll smile and they'll be like, what a kooky character, you know? But they'll, they just can't help but be happy, you know? As Grace will tell you, when someone pursues their own enlightenment, it is to the benefit of everyone around them because they start to live in presence and everyone who comes into contact with them just feels happy. They don't know why. They just feel good. Um, and, 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 and all those like, you know, uh, complexes just go away and, and, and there's no more like, you always, you never, you know? The moment when someone says, you always, spirit is gone. You never, spirit is gone. And often our familial relationships are defined by that kind of language. Nobody understands me. You never understand me, ma. You always do this. Why? You know? Um, and then you just stop listening to that voice, following Jesus instead, so to speak. Uh, and these things will be added onto you also. So he whosoever loves father and mother is, is not fit to follow me. So in the beginning, know full well that when we explore these seven principles of a spiritual life, you will be brought into a conflict between your inner world and your outer world. Societal conditioning, which is only in your head, it's not out there, there's no such thing as a world beyond your own concepts, it's, it's going to rub up against your new way of being. You're going to feel like, oh, I should work a job I hate. How can I pay rent? But your spirituality will demand that you don't work that job. You know, because it takes away the hour that you need to meditate. Or it puts you around people who lie. And your spirituality will not tolerate untruth, even in the slightest. Your passion for truth and purity will pit you against society mired in impurity and untruth. You know, this is why wisdom with God is foolishness with the world. So you better get used to being the fool. <laughs> this is why we like to dress so eccentrically. Because we're just getting used to the fact that no one will have us. <laughs> Claire's, <laughs> Claire's, I got it, puts on the dunce cap. <laughs> and it's funny because it's only the fool in the Shakespearean plays that tells the truth, you know. Ramon Lal writes a beautiful book, um, La Balacuerna. I messed it up. Um, it's a really rare book, very pricey. If somebody gets it, can I come to your house and read it? So I haven't found a copy myself. It's probably in some dusty library somewhere. Um, but this is the world's first romance, you know, and it, it follows the quest of a person in the papacy, you know, and, and he meets a fool named Ramon. And that fool, like the fool of the tarot, teaches him true spirituality. So you get this fool archetype that obviously comes from the Christian uh, tradition of the holy madness stereotype. Fools for Christ, they call it. Um, so know full well that what we're about to talk about in the next coming 30 minutes or so, if you decide to commit to it, will bring you into a new way of being. And today, after all, is yoga day and we're celebrating a summer solstice. So today is a good day for new beginnings, a good day to take a vow together to live in this new vibration. So please know uh, what you're signing up for. Because <laughs> once you start, start walking this path, there's no turning back. You know, so uh, speak now or forever hold your peace. Or, or rather, speak now or forever miss your peace. <laughs> okay, no, that was a bit leading, sorry. You don't have to go on this journey, by the way. Eventually you will. It doesn't have to be now. There's no rush. Okay, so that being said, 
The disclaimers have all been put out there. Here are the seven tools for a spiritual life. Um, God willing, they may be of service. The first, the central tool, the central thing you will have in your arsenal, the main go-to technique, the number one kale and broccoli of the diet of spiritual life uh, is suffering. Suffering is the ultimate tool for spiritual practice in three ways. The first, it's only in times of suffering that you can actually practice. See, Arjuna is not learning yoga in a forest hermitage. He's learning it on the battlefield, in the drama of life. So you will learn from these lectures all sorts of high-flown philosophical ideas, but it's only when you get to put them to test that you're practicing. So, for instance, we learned together that you are not the body, you are not the mind, you know? So, what are you? Now, I walk you through often. Some of you, we've been together for many, many months. Uh, some of you have been practicing <laughs> practicing on your own for many, many years. And some of you are new to it. But you've all heard these arguments before a million times. The dreamer, the waker, and the deep sleep argument. And hopefully it's convinced you that you are not the waking self, nor are you the dreaming self, and you are certainly not the absence of self. <laughs> yes, truly. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you hear this idea, right? And the idea is very simple. You take yourself to be this one, and you take reality to be this reality. Jagrat, waking reality. And you are very frightened of consequences in this waking reality. Then when you go to sleep and you enter dream, gone are all your concerns in waking life. Gone is your idea of this body and this mind. And instead, you step into a new life, in a new body, perhaps several bodies, in new minds, in new personalities, and now you have new problems. The beautiful thing is, when you awake from a horrible dream, you feel a wonderful sense of relief, knowing that all along you were never in the dream, the dream was in you. You projected the dream with your own mind stuff and you withdrew the dream as you transitioned into waking. So now you should start to sense the waking self that you took to be so real ceases to be real in the dream. In the dream, it's the dream self that is real. And when you wake up from the dream, the dream self that you took to be so real only a few moments before um, is no longer real. This should once and for all, once you feel into this insight, show you that what you take to be real is a very flimsy thing. Neither this nor that is real. You know? And that's, that's a very powerful insight. Not this waking, nor that dreaming. So what is real then? You look at deep sleep. You know? Shushupti. In deep sleep, there is no consciousness of your waking reality. None whatsoever. There's no body, there's no mind as you know it in waking. Nor is there any consciousness of dream reality. There are no images. Yet, there was still someone there who experienced deep sleep. If that was not the case, you would be perplexed every time you woke up from deep sleep. If you only inferred the experience of deep sleep, you would spend a few minutes every morning uh, conducting a logical experiment to figure out where you went in that period of time. You might, by inference, deduce that you were sleeping deeply, but you don't do this. You don't have a logical deduction process that you do every morning. Um, you don't uh, take it on faith that you were there. No. Work with your own experience. You cannot deny that in the immediacy of your own experience, you remember having slept deeply. 
You experienced it. And that allows you to say things like, ah, I slept deeply. I slept dreamlessly. I slept fully. How can you say that if there was no I in deep sleep? And given that there was an I in deep sleep, why are you attached to the waking I and the dreaming I? You know, why not start to establish yourself in the I in which waking, dreaming, and deep sleep come and go? And if you can establish yourself in this I, what's the tax problem to you in waking? Simply fill up the forms, you know? And if you can't fill up the forms and you get back up withholding, what's that to you? If it's a nightmare, what's that to you? If the body dies, why do you think you will die, knowing yourself to have persisted even outside of waking, even outside of dreaming? So here you go. Here's a teaching, very powerful method. And as you continue to contemplate this teaching, as you continue to debate it together in our Sangha, eventually this idea, this teaching will, on its own, germinate into full-blown enlightenment. In the Gyana tradition, this we call Nididhyasana. You know, the ability to internalize, where it stops being just a concept and becomes a lived reality. So that is possible for all of you if you continue to contemplate this teaching. Here's another teaching. The seer and the seen are always distinct. The seen are many, the seer is one. So very simply, here's a cup. The fact that I am seeing it, the fact that my eyes are in a relationship with this cup, I know from that relationship that I am the eyes, I am not the cup. In other words, I feel myself to be on this side of the relationship. I don't feel myself to be on this side looking back at me. You know, it would be kind of peculiar if I was looking at Nish as the cup. <laughs> but no, I am looking at the cup as Nish's eyes. So eyes are the seer, Cup is the scene. Now, I look around the room and there are many seen things. Yet, there is a kind of unity experienced with my eyes. It's, <laughs> yes, here, <laughs> Fabricio, I pass it through the, <laughs> it's like Star Wars, passing lightsabers through the force. Now, I see many things, yet I feel myself to be one. My eyes are one. I mean, they're a pair, but you know, the event known as seeing is, is kind of centralized, so to speak. So these two insights are all you need. The seen and the seer are different. The seen are many. The seer is one. Okay, follow this very closely and contemplate this daily. You know, contemplate this before you go to sleep. Contemplate this when you wake up. If this is true, if the seer and the seen are different, if the seen are many and the seer are one, and this is true in your own experience, pay attention to that. It's all you need. Notice that my mind stands in relation to my eyes as the seer and my eyes are now the seen. Knowing that the seer and the seen are different and knowing that I am the seer and not the seen, I can co uh, conclude from that that I am no more my eyes than I am my cup. And that's true for every organ of, of perception. It's true for every experience I can have in the body. So what a powerful, powerful move. I have in one fell swoop proven to you logically by the power of your own experience that you are not the body and therefore should not fear the end of the body, the sickness of the body. You're not the body any more than you are the objects in the room around you. Then you go further. So I'm the mind. I, there's still things to fear, right? Grief. Uh, losing things I love. Uh, blame. Shame. All of that's in the mind. Ah, but wait. Just like there was one who was aware of dream, waking, and deep sleep, there is also one who is aware of the mind. It's not a function of the mind. 
you know, yes, the mind can introspect. So you can do thinking about thinking. But what I'm talking about now is not introspection. Because it's there even in introspection. And most importantly, it's there in the absence of introspection. So when you look at a sunset, you don't need to introspect and think, oh, I'm reflecting on the thought I am perceiving a sunset. Ah, no, it's immediate. It's like, I'm aware of the sunset. You don't have to do some kind of mental activity, some kind of logical process to infer or introspect or reflect. It's simply so immediate. And that is beyond the mind. And so if you're not the body, you are not the mind, you are the awareness that is aware of the body and mind, you have a very powerful tool for suffering. So why is suffering the first thing in our toolbox? Because it is only when suffering arises that you can put these teachings to the test. See, now it's very easy. Now it's like, yeah, I'm sipping my tea. Yes, okay, I know I'm not the body. And now you're like, yeah, the force of the logic. It's so simple. What a profound idea. You must establish in yourself firmly this idea. This is Sankhya, the idea that you are not the body, you are not the mind. And then when suffering arises, and you don't have to seek suffering out, it will find you. <laughs> it's, it's lurking around every corner. Once you hang up from this call, I guarantee 10 minutes later, I don't wish it for you, but some suffering will come. You know, uh, that's when you use these teachings. So when there is pain or illness in the body, you pause. The moment you are about to say, ah, oh, I'm in pain, you, you pause, you catch yourself, you go, am I in pain? No, the body is in pain, but am I the body? Why do I assume that I'm the body? You question that assumption. You see, it is only the force of your unexamined assumptions that keeps you in suffering. So these teachings are there for you, it's Mercury in retrograde causing my suffering. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it's now, the teachings are now there as a tool in times of suffering. So call upon them. It's like using a Pokemon, you know? Life throws something at you, you summon Pokemon, dreamer, sleeper, waker argument. You know, am I hungry? Should I attack the refrigerator? No, it is the body, not me. Exactly. And you know what? It works just as well for the suffering of fear as it does for the suffering of craving. Both fear and craving are high anxiety states. I need this or I need not this. You know, I don't want to be sick. I don't want to be sad. I need to be pleasured. I need this person to love me. Both of them are just suffering. And when both of them arise, either of them arise or both at the same time, use the teaching. Mentally rehearse the teaching to yourself. Feel into what the teaching is saying. Like resonate the way you are resonating now with the teaching during your time of suffering. You see, you will fall asleep. When suffering comes, you will habitually respond. You will mechanically respond. You might start to uh, issue a string of insults at your partner. You know, you might start to mope and become depressed. You know, Mother Teresa says a sad nun is a bad nun. <laughs> you might go into your despondency. You might, there are all these patterns. But before the pattern arises, there's a moment, there's just one moment, a narrow gate if you will, where you can apply the teaching or at least remember the teaching. So here's the first proposition for you. What it means to live a spiritual life is to remember and apply as often as possible the teachings you have gleaned in your Sangha. You know, it's, it's not in the Sangha 
or with the gurukula that you learn. It's in your own life, in the privacy of your own experience, that these teachings can be put to the test. So I invite you, apply the Sankhya. Next time suffering comes, see it as a wonderful opportunity to test what you know. And, and just watch what happens. The next time you suffer, follow this argument. And, you know, I didn't really like do it today because it's not really an Advaita Vedanta class. But there are many videos for you to refer to with the arguments fleshed out a little more. And of course, when we finish the lecture in a little bit, we'll have a question and answer, and maybe we can flesh out the arguments together a little more. Thank you, Caroline. The recording will be on Patreon for you if you want to get the next six um, uh, coming up soon. I feel like a, a BuzzFeed article, listicle. Seven ways to live a spiritual life. <laughs> no, Buddhist-like list too, okay? Reddit and Buzzfrout, Buzz, BuzzFeed. No, what is it? What is it? Some... BuzzFeed, yes. They did not invent the listicle. The Buddhist invented the listicle. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Next week, pop quiz. What are the seven? What are the fives? Multiple choice or blank? <laughs> but yes, okay. So the first one is suffering. When you suffer, the next time you suffer, use this Sankhya. Start to pause and, and change your languaging around that suffering and notice what happens. There'll be a little space between you and your, at first it'll be very small. You'll still suffer. But soon enough, the gap will open wider and wider and suffering starts to go away. Now, I'll tell you a story about the Buddha, God willing. The Buddha was asked by a monk, a very excellent question. Mr. Buddha, you promised us the end of suffering. You said if we followed you, if we joined the Sangha, if we applied ourselves to the uh, Ashtanga Marga, suffering would end. But just like non-monks, we too grow old. We too get sick and we too die. I want my money back. <laughs> Buddha, you said this teaching is the end of, of old age, sickness, and death. Yet my brother monks are coughing and sneezing. My brother monks are getting older. My brother monks are dying. So what have I gained from becoming a monk? Very good question. And the Buddha responds beautifully. Buddha, peace and blessings be upon him, says there are two arrows of suffering. The first arrow cannot be avoided. This is the nature of samsara. The body grows old, the body gets sick, the body dies. That first arrow is inevitable. But it's as if you are being struck by a secondary arrow. You are adding insult to injury by fixating on that suffering, by identifying with the body and identifying with the mind. The Buddha said, suffering is not pain. So Teresa, here it is. Grief is an experience, is a sensation. Pain is an experience, is a sensation. Suffering is merely the secondary reaction to that sensation um, framed as protest. This should not be happening to me. Why? Why? Why shouldn't it be happening to you? Because you have a concept of yourself as someone who ought not be experiencing this. Because you've been socialized to believe that you somehow deserve not to have pain or grief. Or that somehow there can be a world in which there's no pain and grief. This is delusion. It's avidya, spiritual ignorance. Once you realize that pain is inevitable, as long as there is this body experience, there will be experience of pain. As long as there is this mind personality experience, there will be uh, an experience of grief. So the Buddha says, that I can do nothing about. But what I can fix is the second arrow. 
the suffering aspect. I can remove from you the protest, you know, protestant. (laughs) I can remove from you that thought of, I resist this. I don't want this because what I've removed from you is your preciousness. You see, that was the Buddha's project to show you that you are not a self. You took yourself to be a body. You're not that. You took yourself to be a mind. You're not that. Actually, you're nothing. (laughs) Anatman. See, Buddha is a jnani. What the same thing you've heard in the Upanishads. No, you're not the body, you're not the mind. Once you stabilize yourself in that, the second arrow is taken care of. There is another approach though. Uh, one that I, I far prefer. So Sankhya can be very cold and sterile. You know, I'm not the mind. I'm not the body. And, and it will save you. It will save you from the second arrow. But there's another way actually. It's the way of Tantra. Um, it's much harder. But this is where you start to see every experience of pain as a gift, as one way in which the goddess is presenting herself to you. It's one more note in your divine flirtationship between Shiva subject and Shakti object. So when something happens, rather than philosophize away from it, as our Sankhyan predecessors would do, yes, the way of the artist, the way of the Tantrika, is to savor it. Again, you're surrendering your concepts. You're saying, oh, um, I'm done with resisting this. So the Tantrika say, just go the other way with it. Embrace it. Ah, lick it all up. Like Kali licking up the blood of Ratka Bija. Start to eat up your suffering as if it was a gift, a way to experience life. And then grief and pain become enlivening. So in Sankhya, the solution is silence. You know, so suffering and pain arises. Don't react. Just notice it's coming. It'll go away. Everything comes and goes away and it's in the body, it's in the mind. Nothing to do with you. In Tantra, um, the solution is savor. Go, ah, yes, give me the suffering. I I love this. Ah, Devi, you know, if you set up an altar, go and fall to your face before the altar and say, ah, what exquisite heartbreak. How beautiful that you've come to me in this way. Uh, How enlivening. I feel myself in the body so much more intimately thanks to your suffering. If it wasn't for the pain in my hip, I would have been so in the body. Thank you, Devi. Ah, you know, this is the way of Kali. She is drunk with her ecstatic experience, sans concept. So once you can experience life non-conceptually, you're stricken with the immediacy of experience, and it's actually incredibly ecstatic. So I wish uh, Westifer was here. I know he wouldn't mind me sharing the story, but Westifer was once upon a time in surgery, and his anesthetics gave out. What an exquisite time to practice. What a gift to a gyani, you know, his anesthetics gave out and this gentleman had to endure the rest of this incredibly painful surgery on the anesthesia of Sankhya and Advaita Vedanta alone. So at first, Westifer describes, and you can see, I think it's called the, uh, uh, the, maybe it's the divine purpose of suffering lecture, or perhaps it's the Dukkha, why do we suffer lecture? Um, One of those lectures, Westifer tells this story, but uh, God willing, I'll relate it to you now. Westifer said he first did Sankhya when he realized that there was no way out except through philosophy. When he had his back to the, the wall, so to speak, he had no choice but to resort to philosophy. The tool was there. The philosophy was there. It had been so embedded in his 
psyche from many sanghas repeating it, debating it, talking about it, reading about it, that the tools presented themselves at the time in which they were needed. So he started to do the Advaita and started to do Sankhya and it brought some measure of relief. Then spontaneously, his inquiry developed into what if I just accepted this? What if I just opened myself up completely to the full force of this pain? And in Westerfer's experience, he was opened up ecstatically. The pain became tremendous, not even pleasure, just ananda, that indescribable peace that passeth all understanding and ineffable glory. The enlivening experience of just being alive. And when that happens, Westerfer very literally saw Kali. He had a visionary experience in which he saw Kali, fierce and terrible, becoming docile, gentle, and loving. And apparently she walked into the operation room and just sat in the corner and smiled at him lovingly. Sri Ramakrishna, peace and blessings upon him, would say, uh, my mother looks black and ferocious to you. The same way when you're standing from a distance, water looks black. But if you go close to the water, you find it colorless, colorless, no? Similarly, my Kali is not black. She's perfectly transparent. You're just standing too far away. <laughs> so that's the thing. When suffering arises, when Kali appears with weapons, terrifying and fierce, go and make out with her, kiss her, embrace her. We call this the hero's path, the path of Veera, uh, you know, as Raya knows all too well. He's quite the Veera. Um, and, and because it is heroic to love her in this way, you know, to... It's a John Legend song. All your perfect imperfections. <laughs> so you love her, and this is a powerful way to overcome suffering, to transcend suffering. But you see, all of this only happens during suffering. So suffering is your best friend. A spiritual seeker welcome suffering as the battlefield, as the laboratory, as the testing ground for truth. Therefore, do not shirk suffering. Do not flinch from it. You know, if there are heavy boxes to carry, carry them. You know, if you're sleepy, but you have to lecture, lecture. If you're sick and you have to teach an asana class, teach it. Uh, it sounds dramatic, but do your duty, especially when suffering comes. Kant would love this, right? <laughs> Acting for versus according to duty. Okay. So obviously now suffering is your best friend. One more story before we go to the next six. So the story is about uh, in the Russian Orthodox Church. It's a group of mystics who live in the forest. You know, like the Desert Fathers of Egypt um, in the 3rd and 4th century. There are, to this day, a tradition of Russian Orthodox Christians who practice solitude uh, in the uh, quietude of the hermitage, you know, in the forest. So one day, uh, a spiritual aspirant, a Christian mystic, asked his father at the church, Father, I read that one should accept everything as a gift from God. One should accept pleasure as well as suffering as grace. But I don't know how to do this. It's hard, Father. When good things happen, I see it as a gift from God. That's easy. But when bad things happen, I don't understand. How can a deity full of benevolence um, do this to me. How can the deity do this to other people? I'm not able to practice this teaching. Can you guide me? And the father of the church, the exoteric church says, uh, I'm sorry, my boy. I too haven't understood this teaching. I too have not been able to see suffering as grace. But I can point you to someone who might be able to help you. He lives in the forest. Um, here's his address. Go and find him. 
you know. So this young spiritual aspirant moves away from symbolically exoteric religion and goes towards esoteric religion, goes into the forest, and he meets this teacher. And uh, the description of this teacher is he's an old man. His body was ravaged by disease, obviously very enfeebled, you know, kind of rough looking, scraggly hair, just obviously someone who has endured much austerity and much hardship. But there was something very luminous about the eyes. This being had eyes that were very uh, joyful and peaceful. And this being emanated an aura of calm and intensity and silence. And, and so the monk, this young aspirant, goes to our hermit and says, Father, I, I've been practicing. How do I treat every horrible thing in life as grace? And to his surprise, the hermit who obviously had suffered a lot, said, I don't know, I've never suffered a day in my life. <laughs> the hermit said, I don't know what to tell you. God has never given me suffering, so it would be hypocritical for me to teach you how to deal with suffering. I've never suffered. <laughs> you see? So what you consider to be suffering, we consider to be candy. Mm. Savor it, delight in it. And that's why you see a passion for austerity. Why? Yeah, that's flexing. <laughs> why um, are all these desert fathers praying in a well at 3 a.m. in the desert cold? Why? Why are they fasting? Why are they, uh, uh, you know, denying themselves, as Jesus, peace and blessings be upon him, would say? In every hour, they're practicing self-abnegation. They're cutting sugar, cutting coffee, cutting meat. Uh, meditating more. What's up with that? It's because it's no longer suffering. In fact, it's just an expression of their love for purity, for truth, for simplicity. So what you might consider horrible austerity, uh, the monk considers luxury. The luxury, oh, the peace of simplicity, the joy of sleeping on the floor, unhampered by the uh, complexity of luxurious life. So once, I think it was Ramakrishna or, or one of the monks, one of the great teachers, was approached by a very worldly man. And the worldly person fell at the feet of the spiritual teacher and said, Oh, I have such respect for you. You who have sacrificed the whole world for a life in spirit. How great you are. What a martyr you are. I fall at your feet. And this great saint, I can't remember who it was, but the saint picked up the worldly man and threw himself at the worldly man's feet and said, No, no, no. You've got it all wrong. It is I who respects you because I gave up a few shards of glass for a diamond, but you've thrown the diamond away for the sake of these shards of glass. You are the real martyr and you are the one deserving respect. <laughs> Rumi, as uh, Grace, Grace brought Rumi into the room by coming. So Rumi had this beautiful phrase. He'd say, uh, you are confronted by two things, the fire of austerity and the river of pleasure. Notice how peculiar. Those who jump headfirst into the fire of austerity, they appear in the river of bliss. Though the ones who jump in the river of bliss appear in the fire. <laughs> how strange. So choose carefully. You know, choose what you will, uh, what you will take in. So, thus far, um, suffering is a tool because it is only in suffering that you can practice. So start to welcome suffering as a gift, as a chance to practice. That's your first tool. Secondarily, suffering is what brings you to the path. So it's very likely suffering in life that created in you a desire for spiritual life. How interested you are in this spiritual life reflects almost one-to-one -one how much you've suffered. 
So once you start hearing the stories of the people in this room, you will realize you are not alone. Uh, all of you here have suffered a great deal, you know. Otherwise, you wouldn't be spending seven hours on a Monday night doing this. The intensity with which you are pursuing this path is one-to-one -to, -one to the degree to which you have suffered. I mean, not all the time. Some people here are just, uh, you know, very far along. <laughs> so many people in this room have come here as incarnations, as masters, as jivan muktis. You'll see them. Look around the room. Look into their eyes. You'll see them. Uh, but most of us suffered a lot. A lot. Uh, so that's why suffering is such a powerful tool. It brought you into this spiritual life. But look at this. It's a tool because it will keep refining your spiritual life. Where you are suffering now shows you where you're not. It, it's, it's a wonderful thing to realize. I'm still holding on to suffering here. That's where you need to practice, you know. So if you still have craving, if you feel yourself to be kind of stingy, give away all your money. You know, go to vet row in Brentwood. Grace and I are going tomorrow. Come and meet us. Go to vet row and hang out there and, and just practice. Practice. If you, if you feel yourself to be uh, egotistical, um, put yourself in the lowest, lowliest place. Wash people's feet. I don't know. Whatever you need to do, where you are suffering shows you a blind spot. That's where you should practice. So this is how suffering is a powerful tool. Not only is it a battleground to test your truth, but it's also a powerful indicator of where you have left to grow. You know? Now, the third reason suffering is a powerful tool is because when you suffer, your mind deepens. You become a little more serious and your mind becomes a little more open to spiritual truth. So the stuff that we're discussing together is very subtle and very deep. It is only suffering that will deepen you. So Khalil Gibran has a beautiful line of poetry. The self-same well from which your laughter arose was at one point filled with your tears. You see, the, the more you cry, the deeper your well. And the deeper your well, the more ready you are for the rain. <laughs> and the rain will, will come. It will come. Uh, so, suffering, not only is it a, a way to test your truth, not only is it a powerful indicator of where you're not, and therefore a great guide and teacher, it's also, uh, in of itself, deepening you. So whenever suffering appears, know it to be your most reliable tool, your best friend. Suffering is the guru. What is the guru? Every time you suffer, that's your guru, you know? So start to delight. Be excited. When you suffer, pray, you know? Don't pray to end the suffering. Pray to welcome the suffering as the goddess, as your guru, as your spiritual teacher. Um, and the more you resist your suffering, the harder we will knock. Do you notice this? The more you run away from your suffering, how else to get your attention? We're knocking on the other side of the glass just so you will turn around and see yourself. Um, but if you continue to turn away, we have to knock harder and harder and harder until we shatter that damn door. And for some of you, a SWAT team has come in, no? <laughs> so please, the SWAT team came in you reassembled your door. Remember last week we talked about re-traumatization? The reason your spiritual practice is not quite taking hold is because the moment you leave the mat or the meditation couch, you are re-traumatizing yourself. You're continuing to think thoughts as if you're burrowing fingers into the wound, spitting salt. Good night, Vanessa. So when the SWAT team broke in, very likely you reassemble the door. It's, no, it's only natural. You know, being open is, is raw. It's too raw. So you, you put the door up again. So another knock came. 
Every time you put up a door, there will be a knock. Answer it. Open the door. But if you keep the door closed, if you ignore the knock, it will get louder and louder and louder and eventually, fee fi fo fum, you know, come right into your living room. So this is how suffering is a great tool. Suffering is a feedback mechanism for spirituality. It's a wonderful thing. So earlier, someone talked about spiritual masochism. You got it, baby. That's what this is. Mm, delight in it. Uh, Ram Dass would say it's grist for the mill, right? This is a hard one. So love your suffering. Uh, create an altar to suffering, if you will. Stop making it this boogeyman, you know, that you run. It's not that bad. It's not that bad, you know. It's only an unexamined assumption that keeps you precious. You know the water, you put your toe inside and it's like cold and you don't want to jump in? We'll push you. And then you'll realize it's not that bad. It's just a little cold and it won't be cold for long, you know. So be gone, preciousness enjoy um, suffering. And, and, you know, this is so powerful, Jana, because there's a dark side to this too, which is actual masochism. This is what the Buddha was speaking against. This is why I say don't go out and seek it, you know. So this is like waiting for the knock, being so anxious for the knock on your door um, that you open the door, run outside, and go knock on other people's door. I don't, I don't know. This metaphor fell apart the moment I started it. But, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it's like, don't go out looking for suffering because that's just another way to avoid suffering. That's just escapism for the suffering that's there. Look, when you take pride in suffering, what you're doing is you're escaping suffering. You're making a concept out of suffering. When you look for suffering, you're escaping the suffering that is already here because by God, a lot of it is here. You know, just pay attention and you will notice everything is ah oh, suffused with so much suffering. You know, you might feel peace now. Just give it 10 minutes. A thought will come and disturb that peace. That is the voice of your guru. You know, the whisper of air on the back of your neck as you feel goosebumps at the prospect of something horrible happening to you. That is the voice of the guru. It's that moment that you practice. Okay. So let's move on. Suffering is the number one tool for a spiritual life. If you are to take this vow now and be committed to a spiritual life, you must change your relationship to suffering. You are not on this path to escape suffering. You are on this path to transcend it. The only way out is, tr is through, you know. So level one, well, not level one. This is the whole of it, really. Welcome suffering um, as the ultimate tool. Okay, the second one is a little nicer. I know this first one was a, was a little dark, kind of heavy, difficult teaching. Second one is a little better, okay? Second tool is cultivate in every moment of your life beauty and reverence. You see, one reason Tantra tries to personify the goddess in this terrifying form is to make suffering beautiful, to make it sensual, you know? So when you go to your altar in times of suffering, what you're doing is you're associating your suffering with flowers, with incense, with a beautiful candle, you know? Um, ultimately, spiritual life is about inviting more sacredness into day-to-day -day experience. This is the secret behind Japanese tea ceremonies. Uh, as, as, as a poet sings, sip tea sacredly. <laughs> it is the whole of spiritual life. So, Start to invite into your life beauty, you know, um, start to see beauty in things and cultivate it. So you might uh, today devote yourself to buying flowers. It's as simple as that. Just go and pick some flowers or buy some flowers and put them on a table in the house. Light some incense. Make your space beautiful, please. There are some of you who are practicing and your houses, sorry, <laughs> for those of you who will be called out, your houses might be in disarray. 
you know? Um, and that's fine, but bring beauty, bring beauty into the space. Every space you walk into, make it beautiful, whatever that means to you, you know? But there's a lot of neglect for beauty, you'll notice, um, in the name of spirituality. Cultivate beauty. And when you cultivate beauty, what that brings is presence, mindfulness, a kind of reverence for just the pouring of the tea, the smelling, because what is beauty but an experience of the here and now, of mindfulness? What is beauty but the presence of God? A thing of beauty is a joy forever, as the poet sings. Truth is beauty and beauty is truth, as that same poet sings. So how do you cultivate beauty? Um, here are a few like, so this is the tool, second tool, cultivate beauty. Here are perhaps a few ideas. Bookend all spiritual endeavors with a moment of sacredness. So open every lesson with a mantra. Close every lesson with a mantra. Place your spiritual books in a special place. Light some incense, open them with reverence, sing a mantra or say a prayer before you start reading that book. Sing a mantra or say a prayer when you close that book, you know. Make each moment of spiritual learning a reverential, sacred moment. You know, if you play instruments, treat your instruments very well. Wipe them down, speak to them. You know, water your plants sacredly. Another thing is to create, just in one corner of your house, a sacred space. Maybe we call this an altar. Uh, we call this uh, prayer table, puja table. We call this um, kiblat, right? Is that something, something in your house. Make it a remembrance of sacredness. And that is up to you to define. So perhaps your altar has nothing but an acorn from your favorite forest. Perhaps it's nothing but empty space. Perhaps it's a bowl of water with flour in it. Or it's every single goddess you can find, <laughs> you know? However um, gaudy or however minimal, what's important is that it's beautiful to you. That it's a reminder every day of sacredness, of reverence, of beauty. So really make your altar beautiful. Light candles, everyday light candles, light incense. Um, sage it with organically harvested sage, of course. Um, bring flowers and place it at the feet of your deities or, or, or in the space. However you can bring sacredness into the space, do it. And then learn in that space. So when it's time to practice, go and practice in that space. You know, uh, uh, Visit that space often. If you're practicing Islam, five times a day. How beautiful, right? Imagine if you did a sun salutation five times a day as an act of prostration before that which you consider most sacred in life. And it should be uh, so inspiring to you. Do not take on someone else's deity just in the name of doing this, you know? You, this cannot be mechanical. It cannot be something you check off a list. I, I do not want to give you uh, a to-do list today, you know? The idea is to inspire you to follow your own inspiration and make it beautiful, make it sacred. So that's the second tool. Cultivate sacredness, uh, sacred space. Now, the third thing is um, make mundane moments special. So this is, I think, speaking a little bit humbly to our compartmentalization problem that we uncovered last week. Uh, there is tremendous value in saying grace. Grace is here. Grace. <laughs> um, I know some of you grew up in very tyrannical uh, Christian settings in which saying grace is horrible because the people around you were doing it was were doing it unconsciously and mechanically. So it soured the experience for you. Then don't do Christian prayers. Don't say, I thank thee for this our daily bread. No, don't do that. Do an Islamic prayer, you know? 
Place your palms in your hands. Do an Islamic prayer. Uh, do, yeah, exactly. Said you know, it's beautiful Islamic prayer of just, right? It's like bathing your face in water. Good night, Casey. Take care. So, um, do a mantra. Yeah, how real your food looks after grace. Exactly, Claire. Beautiful. Because what you're doing in that moment is you're um, disrupting mechanical living. You see, the problem is the conditioning you've grown up with has power over you because it's so habitual and mechanical. You eat, you brush your teeth, you drive mechanically. And the, the danger of that is you will start to practice spirituality mechanically. You see, spirituality will serve you for as much as three months. Then it, it will stop serving you. Do you know why? It's become mechanic. You know? Yeah, a uh, song says, uh, native Ho in Hawaii, the Hawaiian shamans, the Ho'oponopono shamans, yes, uh, do a aloha breathing into the hands and offering it as aloha. Yes, exactly. Every culture in the world knows how sacred it is to thank thee for this our daily bread. Every culture practices some version of saying grace before they eat, some level of gratitude. You know, my tea said something interesting today. Uh, my tea says, Gratitude is not about what is received. It is about how you receive what is there. You know, Yogi Bhajan, I believe. Uh, Sufis breathe into the palms in prayer. Exactly. Breath blowing. You know, a Sufi will not enter a room without touching the floor and touching their heart. They say thank you to the threshold. So the mundane activity of entering a room becomes sacred. Notice, if you drink tea with a Sufi, they will kiss the cup before they drink. Because they know it's God drinking God, through God, with God, for God, by God, uh, by virtue of God, you know? <laughs> so, if you truly want to live a spiritual life, of course, do this to your own degree. Do not cross a threshold without a prayer. Touch the floor, touch your heart. Offer thanks for the crossing of a threshold. Do not drink without kissing your cup. Every sip you take, kiss the cup, drink. Do not eat without offering a prayer above your food. Uh, do not brush your teeth without doing japa. So ultimately, what we're saying is, um, turn every moment into a moment of beauty and reverence. If you learn nothing else from your spiritual quest, learn to cultivate beauty and reverence. Turn the mundane into the miraculous. You will never be bored another moment in your life. <laughs> this is the cure for boredom. Okay, now the third one. So the first one is suffering. That's your ultimate tool. The second tool is beauty, cultivating beauty. The third tool um, is cultivating a more functional sense of self. So the ego, the sense of self, is largely mechanical, unconscious, and forced upon you. The idea is that there is a certain conglomerate of thoughts, a certain package of ideas that is kept alive by your belief in it. That's known as the ego or the personality. You accumulated it from what your parents told you about you, from what society tells you about you, and what you have told yourself about you. And now you have this construct. It's known as the ego. Um, in other words, you have a certain idea of who you think you are. And you're very invested in that idea. And life is very frustrating because this idea does not serve you. You know it's not real, yet it has a certain power over you. Actually, a lot of us don't know it's unreal yet. You must meditate a lot to realize that you are the awareness in which the thought ego appears. 
But once you start to realize that the ego is merely a thing that you use to relate to the world, you can start to have fun with it, no? See, the ego is nothing but a tool to relate to others and to be in the world. You do, to some degree, need to have this framework, this facade, if you will, in order to be in transaction with the world. Given that you have one now that for this longest time has been kicking your butt, just swap it out for a new one. And uh, the new one that we recommend is the spiritual one. You see the contradictions here? You see how this can become a trap? But because most of you in this room are very mature spiritual practitioners, we can speak of this um, uh, a little bit more liberally. Devote yourself to a new idea of yourself. Knowing that all ideas of yourself say nothing about who you really are. Uh, but if you are going to maintain an ego, might as well, in Ramakrishna, peace and blessing be upon him, in Ramakrishna's words, um, have the ego of a servant. Or better yet, have the ego of a spiritual practitioner, which necessarily includes serving. Okay, some of you are not ready for this teaching. Some of you need to set boundaries, you know. Some of you still need to defend your household against those that would steal your energy. This teaching is not meant for you. And that's just fine. You know, we're all at a different level and no one level is better than another. This teaching is for those who are already at a state of relative um, actualization. So you're able now to guard your time, to guard your energy, to defend your boundaries against others. You're able now to say no to the energy vampires. Only if you can do all of this, take this teaching, please. This teaching, and, and, and even then, even then, you can still take this teaching in this sense. Stop seeing yourself the way that you see yourself now. In other words, you might see yourself as a failure. You know, someone who disappoints those around them. You might have a very poor sense of self. Or you might see yourself as the shit. The ultimate rock star. You know, uh, Nikki Six. You know, I'm like, cool, I'm cruising down Hollywood Boulevard, you know playing the Viper Room, yeah, this is the shit. You know, whatever sense of self you have, who you think you are informs how you act and how you act informs how you experience life. That being said, surrender any notion of yourself that does not align with your ideal. Your ideal is freedom, yes? Your ideal is spiritual life. So start to act the part. At least fake it till you make it, you know? Uh, uh, and, and there are some tools to do this. One of them is... I say this with some reservation because there are many phony, holy people out there. There are many shams, but this group is not that. Um, maybe change the way you dress, you know? Maybe uh, if there's a certain way that you dress that, uh, you know, like, okay, Nish wears these, these boots and, and these, like, long uh, coats, you know, like, very kind of extravagant coats. And that's rock star ego, you know? Like, you've got to make a statement. You've got to play the show, and it's got to be over the top and larger than life and all that. Um, if there's a certain kind of, like, style of clothes that evokes a certain kind of ego that is no longer aligned with your spiritual self, give all those clothes away. You know, it's funny. I was at a Goodwill or something uh, buying those clothes, and I thought to myself in the past, who would give this away? This is the coolest coat in the world. Why is it at a Goodwill? Full circle. <laughs> Returned it to the Goodwill. <laughs> So everyone, I think everybody in Hollywood has to go on that rock star trip. And then eventually they end up back at the Goodwill in which they got all their gear, giving it all up. But once you give up the clothes, also the association. So it's like a uniform, right? 
you wear this uniform of your ego. Maybe you have this like low sense of self and you think no one will love you because you're unattractive. So you just wear like, like dumpy clothes that you hate because you don't have that maybe sense of beauty to, to like wear clothes that are beautiful. Give up that uniform. Dress up nice. Beautiful. You know, go out in dresses, looks to kill. You know, or um, if you're really into the whole beauty thing and you're kind of trapped in the world of people only love me when I then start to wear like Britney Spears circa 2006 outfit. I don't know, wear sweats everywhere. How empowering. So the idea is there is a uniform that you've, uh, you are accustomed to wearing because of a kind of construct that you're accustomed to having an idea about yourself. So changing that idea about yourself is as simple as perhaps changing the uniform associated to it. So what idea is better to have of yourself than a spiritual aspirant? That is someone who is devoted full time to the task of renouncing illusion, attaining freedom, radical compassion and acceptance of others and service. Could there be a higher ideal than renunciation and service? Um, and given that, you might as well dress the part. Choose simplicity, perhaps, you know. Um, so clothes are a powerful tool. Just a suggestion. Another thing, perhaps, is speech. How would a spiritual person speak? Of course, no, this can become very phony very soon, you know. So you don't want to be overly attached. But given that you're going to be faking it anyway, right? Because right now, you're faking disempowerment. You're faking this ego that's oppressed. There's a tyranny. So if you're going to fake it anyway, might as well fake it right. Imitate a free person rather than imitating this fake person. Because the free, uh, the, the trap person, because the free person is closer to your nature, you know? So the gurus are great role models because they are just transparent reflections for your true self. So be like them, you know? You must follow the Christ and live in his example, peace and blessings be upon him because the Christ is you. The Christ is more you than you are you. I have to meet my boss. Peace and blessings be with him. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> yes, thank you for that. Yeah, so uh, you're going to fake it anyway. Fake um, freedom. You know, imitate freedom and then it will become real. So how do you do this? Well, there are a few things that you can wear to remind you uh, of your path. You know, so if you're practicing Buddhist, I don't know, you might wear clothes from a Tibetan Buddhist shop or something because it reminds you of that. You might wear saris or you might wear long flowing white robes. You might wear uh, a skull cap, a yarmulke. You might wear... Um, whatever you think Jesus wears, wear that. I don't know. Whoever your ideal is, dress like them, you know? Might as well. And talk like them. So it's almost like that trope, WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do? It's kind of funny. You can put anything you want, WWRD, what would Ramana do? WWRD, what would Ramakrishna do? WWHSD, what would higher self do? I don't know. Plug whatever you want into that equation and say and do as you think that being would say and do. Because verily, that being is more you than this you you are pretending to be now. Yeah, and Douglas, Kaftan maybe, uh, Jippa, um, these are more cultural than they are religious. But the idea is basically silk, linen, um, breathability, breathability, flowiness. <laughs> These are things that this boy has come to associate 
with spiritual life. They're clothes that need to breathe. Exactly. And you see it in Qigong practitioners. How do Qigong practitioners dress? How do yogis dress? Or not dress. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend the sadhu thing in polite society. How would, um, I don't know, Jesus dress? Obviously, there seems to be an emphasis on simplicity, uh, yet beauty. See, beauty is still important. Uh, and, and the Tibetans will wear simple linens with beautiful colors, you know? Uh, how many do you need to have? How many pairs of clothes? You need? How many clothes would Jesus have? You know, maybe three or four uh, at most, right? Probably only had one, right, Claire? And he would go to John the Baptist and John the Baptist would do some laundry for him. Just kidding. <laughs> John the Baptist is a special laundromat, actually. <laughs> he takes the dirty clothes of your spirit and washes them for you. <laughs> but yeah, so how many clothes do you really need to have? Do you need to have a full wardrobe? Would Jesus have a full wardrobe? Give it all away. Why not? Keep three or four pairs. Actually, give it all away and go out and get three or four kaftans. I don't know. Whatever you consider to be the garment of a spiritual person, go and get those garments. Now, if this was a cult, I would direct you to our ashram gift shop in which you would buy a color that we decided you would wear. And then we would say, you are all followers of this guru. <laughs> so this can go sour really fast. So please don't dress as everyone in this room dressed. Do not dress as your teachers dress. Dress the way you think a spiritual person would dress. And I sure hope that that's different for everybody. It should be, you know? Yeah. And Steve Jobs. Somebody mentioned Steve Jobs because he used to wear all the uh, um, same clothes, right? Dexter. Yeah, Dexter from Dexter. See, he knew putting on the lab coat made him like the scientist that he wanted to be, you know? So yes, dress the way you think your ideal would dress. <laughs> yes, Anisha, exactly. And, and you know, that's, that's why it's important to emphasize the subjectivity of this teaching. That's where I think many teachers go wrong because they put an emphasis on simplicity and linen and silk and, uh, and all of that, but they prescribe it for you, forgetting that the idea of dressing is to evoke beauty. And that's idiosyncratic. Yes, <laughs> Lauren. Lauren left Grace, but Grace and Lauren were in these epic Doc Martens today. They looked like Trinity from The Matrix, which I think is so cool. How do those people dress, right? The people waking other people up? Sunglasses. Seriously, they mean business. Black cloaks, you know, boots. And, most, and Neo would have the little Chinese thing, right? He would wear the little silk Qigong Tai Chi Quan. Tai Chi Chuan thing. So yeah, dress like you think a spiritual person would dress. And that doesn't mean you can't be badass and fashionable. Just make sure that what you're wearing evokes for you that new identity. For today on the uh, on, on yoga day, and, and of course the solstice just happened yesterday, today is a powerful day to start afresh. Maybe choose intentionally to dress. And you might realize the way you dress is incredibly habitual. Yes, maybe there's some selection going on, but who is selecting? Is it self-actualize, sorry, self-propagation, self-aggrandizement, uh, uh, and self-preservation that's doing the selecting? If so, um, select from a different place, you know? So yeah, clothing. Uh, another way to cultivate a new sense of self is posture. Be very careful how you hold your body because how you hold yourself doesn't just convey to others an inner state, it conveys to yourself and inner state. Now it's a two-way door. When you're feeling disempowered, you sit with disempowerment. 
You know, the, the shoulders sag, the, the shoulder blades spread apart, there's protraction, and you convey to yourself and others, I am afflicted, you know? Now, one way to change that is to change the posture. How would, uh, insert name of your ideal here, walk? How would, insert name of your ideal here, sit? This is why it's very recommended that you surround yourself with pictures of masters because you will see in them the posture that you should have. Look at how the Buddha sits with poise and majesty. How would Swami Vivekananda speak with a voice of thunder? He even said, my boys, he said, uh, send to me a few strong souls with minds made of lightning and muscles made of iron. I will change the world with just a handful of these. And he would say to the young monks, you know, go out and teach others of their own divinity and speak this philosophy with the voice of thunder. Roar it like a lion. You know how beautiful. So like that. Or how would Ramakrishna speak? So demure, so soft-spoken, so quiet, you know, so loving. He would not say a bad thing about anyone. How would Maharaj uh, Maharaji Neem Karoli Das Baba speak. He would yank your beard and say, ha ha, Ram Das is angry, ha ha ha. You know, how would Lao Tzu or Ramana Maharshi speak? <laughs> how would Jesus speak? He wouldn't, he would sing, he'd play Wonderwall. So like this, right? Think, think and contemplate about how your masters carry themselves in speech and in posture and in dress and then cultivate that identity for yourself. Be the master that you are. Or as one of my teachers, Carolina Goldberg says, remember faster that you are the master. <laughs> so dress, talk, walk, and sit like that. So, you know, from now on, you can decide, I will no longer dress in ways that do not align with my ideal. I will no longer speak in ways that do not align with my ideal. And that might be refraining from gossip, harmful words. That might mean refraining from making obviously untrue statements that say you are the mind and you are the body, that separate you from others. And most importantly, how would I live as if I was already enlightened? So cultivate that sense, you know. Uh, and, and short of that, cultivate the ego of a servant. So just devote yourself to making other people feel good. Uh, this, now this teaching, please take with a grain of salt. You know, it's only for, um, uh, it can be dangerous because if, unless you know how to defend your boundaries, it won't be service. It will be doormatting, you know, cause then you serve out of fear, not out of love. You serve because you want others to like you and accept you. No, you must serve from a place where you don't give two shits about what other people think about your service, but you're still happy to serve them. Wash their feet. You know, even if they're, especially if they're roaring insults at you for doing it. <laughs> so yes, there you go. Uh, that's, that's tool number three. Cultivate a more functional sense of self. You know, now up, uh, number four, find a sangha that supports this sense of self. In other words, once you decide to speak, act, walk, sit, and dress in a different way, your friends will probably leave you or have you leave your lifestyle behind. In other words, the friends that you know will not take kindly to you changing your sense of self. After all, your old sense of self served them in some way. You know, the rock star niche provided certain, you know, things that when that goes away, why should they stay around? So I had this, uh, this funny revelation with drug friends, you know? So there are people who are only friends when a certain substance is involved. 
When that substance goes away, those friends go away too. Because you're all in a cabal. You're all conspiring together to keep up a certain facade. All of you dress in similar ways. You speak in similar ways and you do similar things because you're all organized around a similar ideal. For a time, it was bohemian bacchanalia, you know, and now that you're orienting your life around a different thing, necessarily you're going to have different friends. This is very painful. Relationships might fall away. Relationships that you're very attached to might fall away. Uh, parental figures might fall, fall away. Um, friends that you've known for a long time might fall away. And you might resist this because of sunken cost fallacy. But I've been with them this amount of time, or they're my parents, or uh, this friend was from childhood. Sorry to say... Um, you've changed your center of life from fear to love. They cannot follow you there until they themselves to decide to, to live from love, you know? So how can you maintain that relationship when you are no longer the person who started that relationship? It would be a facade to maintain a relationship that has outlived its function, so to speak. Exactly, Zeti. The drug could be profession. There are people who gather around the church of capitalism, the church of materialism, you know, who go out for sake after business uh, hours. And like, that's, that's a thing. And you can be very trapped in that. So deciding now to devote yourself to a spiritual life, likely you will start to have spiritual friends. That is, you will seek out company that reifies or reinforces your ideals. Yes, read the church of sake. <laughs> <laughs> forsake the sake for sake <laughs> anyway um once you start to align yourself with a spiritual life you must find others who are devoted to your ideals and hopefully devoted yes <laughs> devoted to the degree to which you are devoted so thankfully when the student is ready the teacher appears but also when the student is ready the sangha appears when you decide to take your first steps into this much richer world, you will not take them alone. Very soon around you, like mushrooms after rain in a South Asian forest, friends will appear. You know, friends will appear. And they are true friends because they are friends who aren't using you for something. You know, they are friends who enjoy you but know that they are not the mind, they are not the body, so you must not also be the mind, not the body. And because of that unconditional love for you and for spirit, they're willing to point out the broccoli in your teeth. You know, friends who will be real with you, friends who will, who will keep you on your path and who will scold you, fun guys. <laughs> this is a night of, of, uh, <laughs> of such, <laughs> sorry. So there will be friends and you will, what you will do together now is, is spiritual things. And the friends with which you used to do not that spiritual things, they kind of fall away. And you know, even if you hang out with them, they won't hang, they won't like it. Like you will, like, let's say you just go to the club, right? With the friends you used to go to the club with, they will, they will see that you're not having fun there. They will see that you're no longer interested in picking people up or in like, I don't know, drinking yourself to death or, or, or scoring ecstasy or, or whatever. They'll, they'll just see in your face that you're no longer about that kind of life. Uh, yeah, exactly, Ryan. Exactly. Uh, yes. <laughs> the puns are better than the philosophy. Philosophy. What is it? But anyway, um, they will notice, they'll see it on your face, you know, they'll notice like this person just isn't about what they used to be about. And they certainly aren't about what I'm about. And they'll stop inviting you. 
So it's not even a choice. Once you start living a spiritual life and living by different ideals, um, yes, reeling with the wine of spirit. Once you start living by different ideals, your friends that you used to do drugs with, go to clubs with, spend hours shooting pool with, they just will stop inviting you. Because the last time they went out with you, you start to question all their illusions. Hey man, are you really happy drinking? Do you really need to buy that dress? And they're like, fuck off. I'm trying to enjoy my life, you know? You're telling them about the special effects in a movie they're still very much invested in. So you will be kind of kicked out of that Garden of Eden, if you will. The friends will leave you behind. Uh, and this might mean a period of loneliness. So bear in mind, like we said earlier, spiritual life might demand a lot of you. So your relationships, if they are not in truth, they will, mark my words, fall apart. They will. I'm sorry. But if your partner, if your family, if your cousins, if your friends are not in truth, if you aren't devoted to spiritual life together um, to the same degree, uh, and, and often one spiritualizes the other. So when one person um, starts to become spiritual, two, one of two things can happen. Either the other person becomes darker or the other person rises to the challenge. You know, that, that will happen. So you'll notice it's a very uh, uh, binary kind of reaction. It, it's never like, oh, okay. They're, they're never chill about it. When you decide to become spiritual and devote yourself full time, to spirituality, something will happen in your friends. <laughs> yes, as Fabricio says. Claire says, I can't think about this. It would make my whole life meaningless. Claire, I can't think. Yeah, 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 right? Claire, you're too deep. Claire, stop it. Why are you so deep? Why are you such a Debbie Downer? Why are you so serious all the time? The Buddha does not get invited to parties. <laughs> no, he probably does. He just exudes such an aura of calm and joy, such a charisma that everybody loved him, of course. Uh, but once he started talking, they would stop inviting him. <laughs> the Christ didn't hang out um, at social gatherings. He flipped tables at them. He mostly hung out on the street. Socrates and the Christ hung out with like lepers and beggars and all that. You know, the afflicted. Um, so you see, once you start on this quest, your loved ones, as, and, and unfortunately, especially your relationships, intimate relationships, one of two things can happen. One, there's... So here's... This is sad, but in the beginning, they'll be supportive, like faux support. Like, oh, babe, it's so awesome that you're meditating or, or you're doing ceremonial magic. I, I love that for you. <laughs> you know, um, I'll support you. And then when your life starts to change, when you start to maybe want to, you know, indulge less, when you, you know, suddenly you'll notice your partner will A, be inspired by that and do that also. And you start to inspire each other. And then you have a relationship and truth and love and it's beautiful. Then you become true householders. Both of you invested in, in deepening life, in, in teaching each other. Um, or, and this is far more common, uh, the partner becomes threatened, becomes threatened by your new freedom. And more, more than anything, it's, it's subtle and energetic. Their darkness is prodded by your light, so to speak. And so starts to manifest itself a little more aggressively. This is the knock on the door, by the way. It, your partner gets possessed in a way, as you will see. They start to say words they never said before. It's like they're pushing your buttons. They're testing you. It's like they just become so dark in proportion to how bright you are becoming. It's like a shadow being cast. Why? The door is being knocked, telling you that this relationship is no longer in truth. And it will fall away from you. It will be purified from you. And that's rough because it might invite into your life a period of aloneness. When the divorce happens, when the friends stop inviting you to the club, 
often you will be swept up by a spiritual community, uh, but not always, right? Sometimes there's a bit of a refractory period. This again is a test. Back to suffering, back to tool number one. Yes. <laughs> okay. So that's that's the third, fourth thing. Fourth thing is to find a sangha, a family, and really take refuge in that sangha. Please, like we said last week, start WhatsApp groups. Text each other often. Call me anytime. You know, let's let's create. And sometimes I'll be teaching. Sorry, but let's create together um, a, a community in which we can hold each other to the highest ideals, needing nothing from each other, but the total emancipation and freedom of the other. You know, so the sangha is one of your greatest tools, especially in relation to cultivating a new, more functional sense of self. The fifth one, um, and this is a beautiful one. Be with the guru. Be with the guru as often as possible. What is the guru? As Fabricio says, the guru is the glitch in the matrix. The guru is emptiness. The guru is the one point in the conceptual nightmare of samsara that is absolutely devoid of concepts. It's a chink in the armor of Maya. You know, in the tantric tradition, Maya is called kanchuka, armor. There is a little crack that allows light in, and that's the guru. The guru is not a person. Please do not make that error. The guru is not some dude or some person. It's not someone you should pay money to. Uh, it's not someone you go and like bow down to or put flowers on. It, it's not that, although it sometimes takes the form of that. And sometimes in order to practice guru yoga, you might feel like giving money, giving flowers, falling at the feet of not a person, but an ideal. So the guru is a function. And as George Furstein, the Indologist says, it's uh, the function of broadcasting reality to you. So the guru, when you find them, it's like looking at yourself or better yet, it's like being transparent. The guru looks at you and there is such clarity, such emptiness in the guru's eyes. It's like looking into a yawning horizon, staring at the void itself and the void stares back. You're standing there naked. As Bob Dylan sings, you're invisible now. You got no secrets to conceal. So how does it feel? You know, so there you are um, with the guru. So how can you be with the guru now? Maybe you do have one and you can actually be with the guru. You know, yes, the guru is the abyss. <laughs> the guru is shunyata personified. The guru is the eyes of God, which is your true self looking back at you. And it can be very, very awe-inspiring. <laughs> Red. <laughs> yes. So um, how do you be with the guru? Um, here are a few options. So... What is the guru? Each of you have one, uh, like a personal one, but there are masters. So maybe we can phrase this differently. If you aren't with the guru often, be with the masters often. So this is especially true when you lose your friends and your relationships. So when you've lost your relationships that are not in truth, which will fall away um, if you're truly on this path, then who do you turn to? I love um, that line in the movie Almost Famous, you know, that really beautiful movie. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, they're driving in the car. Uh, Penny Lane is driving our hero in the car. And she says to him, when you get lonely, go down to the record store and hang out with all your friends. Isn't that beautiful? It was about that time in America and, and in the world where music really um, meant something more than, you know, it's like the band. You really felt what 
I don't know, the Beatles were saying or something. And, and you would go down to the record store and you would get your copy of Revolver and you would come home and you would feel like you, you weren't alone anymore because you were in music, you know, in a sense. It's such an innocent time in music. <laughs> Douglas. <laughs> yes. And the liner notes and the whole vinyl. And, and the idea that like when Penny Lane says, when you're lonely, you know, Kate, Kate wins. I forget the actor, actor's name. But when you get lonely, go down to the record store and be with your friends. Kate Hudson. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Kate Hudson. Um, beautiful movie. Oh, just so poignant, you know, so poignant. The, the, okay. But yeah, that movie had such gems in it, you know, especially like Lester Bangs is on the phone. He's like, kid, let's be real. The only thing worth sharing is what you share with others when you're feeling uncool. What a beautiful line also, right? And the family call. Be bold, Russell, and mighty forces will come to your aid. <laughs> you know, what? It's such a beautiful movie full of incredible one-liners that sing. You know why? The movie was made in spirit. It was made by someone, a Rolling Stones writer, who had lived that life and touched reality and made a movie about it. You know, if you see the movie um, Sing Street by John Carney, the director, uh, uh, or, or even Begin Again, uh, by John Carney. I, I'm I'm telling you this movie because there was an incarnation in which Nish is a musician. And so these movies are about music. And they're about people in music who have touched reality through music. But when you watch a movie like Begin Again or Sing Street, which is about some boys in Ireland who find a way to live through the recession because of music. And in that movie, this boy is getting bullied, but he discovers his art. And then he says to the bully, go ahead, hit me. You can only destroy. You cannot create. I am beyond all harm. Advaita, real Advaita there. But you watch these movies and you hear in Kate Hudson, you hear in uh, various characters, uh, the voice of spirit. It's like Bumblebee from Transformers. That's how God speaks in sound bites through little cultural things like songs and movies. Uh, when a song is made in the spirit and when a movie is made in the spirit, it conveys spirit. So in that movie, Kate Hudson says, when you get lonely, go down to the record store and be with all your friends. Why have you bought into the assumption that the only friends you have are in bodies? <laughs> the gurus are the greatest friends because in their eyes is nothing but compassion, unconditional love, acceptance, and intense investment in your own freedom. Yeah, Sing Street is about discovering the cure and them. <laughs> yeah, wasn't that a great moment? <laughs> yeah, great movie, great movie. Watch it after this. I just might for old time's sake. Um, so be with the guru. And there are a few ways to do this. One is in dreams. You know, you might get regular visitations in dreams. Hang out with your guru there. Two, in books. Always seek out the words of the masters. Uh, Ramana Maharshi's Who Am I? Nisargadat Maharaja's um, I Am That. Uh, Ramakrishna Paramahansa um, Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna Avagrius oh, Avagrius Avagrius Read Avagrius and weep You know, read anything by Avagrius The Way uh, the way of a Pilgrim Which is by an anonymous Russian mystic You know, The Way of a Pilgrim um, and, and, and by the way, if you're lonely, read The Way of a Pilgrim. It will speak right to your soul. That book is probably the eeriest book written in Christian mysticism by virtue of it being so powerful. If you're going through a dark time, St. John of the Cross's D The Dark Night of the Soul. Um, 
if you need to be recharged up again, you need some energy, you need someone to slap you awake and thump your heart back into beating spiritual life, anything by Vivekananda, you know, um, his words are like fire or like fine phrases of music, as one commentator said. If you need some peace, you know, read Shunryu Suzuki, you know, Shunryu Suzuki. So these are all your ma- Suzuki, um, Ramdas, you know, Krishnadas, uh, uh, any teacher is is your friend, you know, your true friend. And hopefully Grace will read for us. Uh, just giving you a heads up, Grace, so you can find that poem. But Rumi's The Soul's Friend. But that word friend, I mean, what more perfect relationship could you want in this life than a friend? You know, not a romantic, like a romantic partner ideally is that friend. Capital F, friend. A parent ideally is that friend, which is spiritual companionship. Like, yes, we're in a relationship intimately, romantically. Yes, we're in a filial relationship. But in that, there should be spiritual companionship, which is, I will tell you when there's something in your teeth. Or what I want for you is not to be the person that serves me, but to be the person that serves you, which ultimately I know serves me because we're both headed to an annihilation of this concept, me. You know, you want a friend. And when those aren't there for you in physical form, happily all of this is preaching to the choir, all of you are here. Uh, but in maybe, I don't know, maybe something happens and, and you find yourself alone, uh, which is unlikely given this sangha, but say that that's the case. And for anybody watching this video who doesn't feel like a part of this sangha or like you have spiritual friends, um, you do. They're there in the books. They're there in the videos. They're there in podcasts and little audio lessons. The words of the masters are a fountain of ever-renewing joy that you should drink from every day. Do not go to bed without reading a little Rumi, without reading a little Way of the of a Pilgrim, without reading a little Evagrius. Whatever your um, ideals are, spend time with them. Spend a lot of time with them because, you know, you become the company you keep, right? Exactly, Jessica. Notice how intoxicated we are to be together because wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am also. And the I am is very am here, (laughs) you know? Um, And so be with books that give you that feeling. Be with audio programs or YouTube videos that, that give you that feeling. These are your friends. So be with the guru doesn't just mean physically be with the guru in dreams in books be with the guru in contemplation like when you do the wwrd what would ramana do um um, be with them in contemplation think about them you know have pictures of them let me let me show you uh, a picture of ramakrishna and and just notice the look in this gentleman's eyes he also is doing the apana mudra (laughs) rock on garth and Fabricio, if you could show the eyes of Ramana Maharshi, that would be really great. Because Fabricio has in his possession that beautiful book from Ramana Maharshi. You know, the eyes of Ramana. I mean, look at Neem Karoli Baba, you know, Maharaji, you know, and then Yogananda. Look at the, the master and the eyes of the master, you know. The Christ is back there in the altar. I don't want to disturb him. Maharaji and, uh, and, and, and Yogananda are a bit more game. <laughs> they were nearer. But um, surround yourself with that stuff, you know? Have your whole house just filled with little clues. Everywhere in your house, place a clue, which is the face of a master, you know? Just place a little thing. And when you see it, 
It'll just kind of wake you up a little bit. It's like a little gap in your conceptual framework. Okay. So look at the pictures, look at the eyes. Just spend time looking lovingly into the eyes of the master. It's an intimacy you you cannot find anywhere else. Yeah, is there a market for Noam Chomsky posters though? <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yes, whoever, whoever. Now, um, the sixth one, and so kind of coming to the end of our our list here, the sixth one is to use your senses. Now, this is very much like being in the body, like we talked about last week. Um, there are tools that you have in spiritual life that address how tactile and sensual we are as learners. So um, I highly recommend creating some sort of system of Pavlovian conditioning in your life. In a way, having the master scattered around your house and surrounding yourself with spiritual objects, which, by the way, shouldn't be a concept. There are no objects that are more spiritual than others. It's all up to you. But surrounding yourself with objects that evoke sacredness. Um, and I know, Grace, you're trying to go to sleep early tonight. So we will do that poem soon, okay? We'll get there. We'll get there. I just almost, almost. Now, um, surround yourself with as many objects of sacredness. That's a kind of Pavlovian conditioning, is it not? You're using your eyes to continuously see reminders. Remember, at the top of the lecture, we said something like, being spiritual, living a spiritual life is really about remembering and applying teachings. So any tool you can have for zikr, for remembrance, for samyak smriti, just mindful remembering, catching yourself in your day-to-day mechanic conditioning response, that's something you should incorporate into your life. So have those little images scattered around the house. That's how you use your eyes. But you have other senses too. We're very tactile, you know? Wearing certain clothes can tap into that. Linens and silks might be able to tap into that feeling of sacredness. But I highly recommend using maybe mala beads or, or some kind of rosary. You know, if you go on Amazon and try to buy an Islamic prayer mat, it will come with a rosary. Have you noticed? Most of them come with rosaries. Every tradition has rosaries. Whether they're the, the Rudraksh malas of the yogi, the Tulsi malas of the Vrindavan Kirtanwalas, the sandalwood or bodhisattva malas of the Buddhists, the yak bones of the Tibetan Buddhists, whether it's the wooden malas of the Sufis uh, and the Islamic prophets, uh, whether it's the prophet, uh, peace and blessings be upon him, or whether it's the uh, Hail Mary ones. Every tradition has uh, some kind of rosary. What's up with that? What's with that? Uh, and, and the answer there is we learn with our hands. You know, use your hands uh, in your spiritual life. Uh, work with something you can touch and feel and, and, and play with, you know. Uh, that's a very wonderful way to be childlike about it. Next, uh, certain scents are very good. You know, so um, the mind has a very powerful associations with scent. When you find your memory box and you smell that little bit of gum that your your beloved was chewing in the playground at age 18, doesn't it bring back a powerful memory of that relationship? Like if you smell your lover's perfume lingering on the pillow sheet, wow, you know, even if she's been gone for five months, like what a powerful tool is scent. So start to cultivate in your own life certain scents. I recommend working with incense intentionally. So don't just burn incense to burn it, you know? Burn a certain incense for a certain thing. Maybe you burn sandalwood for learning. Maybe you burn mirror for meditating. I don't know. But then you create a kind of Pavlovian conditioning. 
Yeah, exactly, Jana. You're taking notes or drawing using your hands in meditation. Um, yeah, you know, I, I did get that picture from the Ramdas Love Serve Remember Shop also. Um, when I got when I got this box, I really enjoyed this <laughs> this show and tell today. We we moved to a new house, so all this unboxing has uh, has revealed to me all these little things, <laughs> but um, to be given away soon, I think. So uh, yeah, making your natural incense. There it is. Look at that. Look at what John has got going right now. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, it's so sweet to use your hands in this way and use your nose in this way and use your ears. So maybe invest in singing bowls or tingshas, you know, or or get uh, uh, a record, you know. Oh yes, RJ, so good. Uh, I'm not the mind, I'm not the body. So why are we using all the senses? Why are we doing all this mind work with philosophy? Excellent question, RJ, and I'll answer it in just a bit. So uh, that's number six, use the senses, use the music, you know, have a Kali Mantra going through your house or something. Uh, anything you can do to stay fixed on your ideal, do that. You see, and I'm going to give you the final one now. Uh, but I hope by now you're starting to get a feel for what the goal of all of this is. You know, this whole list is only pointing to one practice, which is systemically, regularly, and devotedly disrupting your mechanical, conditioned, unconscious responses to life. That's really all we're trying to fix here. You're living your life driven by motives that you haven't questioned. The assumptions that are unexamined continue to exert a kind of force of habit on your life. What we're doing now is creating little gaps, little moments, little narrow gates in which the light of spirit can disrupt that unconscious living and open you up to maybe a different way of living, a different motive. So, by now, you should kind of get a sense for what this lecture is leading towards. And please feel free to like mix and match. You know, I, I, I look forward to uh, reading an article or, or, or coming to your class about exactly this. Uh, because each one of us has to package this. And you're all teachers here, uh, whether you want to be or not. Um, you will all be packaging this to others. So create your own matrix glitches. Exactly song. And hopefully uh, after this lecture, which is just couple minutes away, 10 minutes away. So sorry. Uh, thank you for being patient. When we finish this lecture, I hope that we'll have an opportunity to share with each other our matrix glitch uh, techniques, you know, and we'll pool together a, 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 just a, a library of resources and we'll have it in the recording. And whenever we feel like ours have become mechanical, we'll come and, and, and plunge into the treasure trove of this sangha and practice what other, other people are practicing. You know, so here's the final one. This is number seven. Practice syncretically. In other words, have a holistic practice. This is a little bit like the senses thing. Use all of your senses in your spiritual life. But this is subtler or at least different. You see, you are not one dimensional. Some of you practice jnana yoga. You read philosophy, you debate, and you contemplate. But you also are emotional beings. Some of you practice bhakti yoga. You practice emotionally and you sing and dance. But you also have an intellectual curiosity. 
So in other words, every religion in the world is equally valid. It's just as valid as every other religion. In fact, every spiritual tradition, even the church of science, is in its own way a spiritual tradition. All of them are valid in some way to bring you to truth because each of them are a unique expression of the ineffable truth. Since truth is ineffable and infinite, it has infinite expressions. And since you are yourself an expression of truth, there are certain spiritual traditions that will map onto your personality a little better than others. But since you are also quite holistic, it's not a one-to-one model, you know? You might need various traditions. So I recommend if you are uh, steeped in the traditions of yoga, Please spend a week in which you just stay away from yoga. Just be a Sufi for a week. And uh, if uh, you're mired in Sufism, spend some time being a Christian for... Uh, by the way, don't leave your daily practice though. I'm talking about in terms of inspiration and reading. Your practice stays the same, okay? So please don't abandon your practice for some other practice. If you're a practicing yogi, practice that. Dig that well. Don't be like, okay, I was a, I, I did asana last week. Now I'm going to do... So, no, 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 no. I'm talking about inspiration and reading. Stay with your practice, stick to your practice, but uh, when you're looking for inspiration, read outside the syllabus, read into other traditions, um, and then do this kind of personal comparative religious adventure. You know, start to read the scriptures of all the religions, even like the more obscure ones uh, that might be dying out, like Zoroastrianism or, or stuff like that. Read all that stuff, and then then that will keep it fun for you, you know? So that's the final tool, to keep things fun, to keep things fresh, you need to be told the same stuff in different ways. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is for the next several weekends, go to one place of worship and then go to a different one the next week. Go to exoteric religion. Go to mass, especially those of you who are running away from mass. That's where you need to go, you know. Uh, go to temples, go to synagogues, go to Buddhist monasteries, go to Jain monasteries, especially since the world is opening up. Go and move among the various spiritual traditions of the world and drink it all in. Imbibe everything they have to teach. Learn skepticism from the atheist materialist. Learn devotion from the Christians and Muslims. Learn um, dedication and, and, and uh, 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 devotion from the sadhus, sorry, uh, uh, rigor and discipline from the sadhus in India. Learn um, intellectual rigor from the Buddhists. <laughs> exactly, Amanda. That's why you should go there. Only to so, show you that you won't. The, the, you know where all the witches are? They're in the Bible. The true witches are all Christians. <laughs> uh, so, um, that's the seventh one. Practice syncretically so that you can practice holistically. So these are the seven tools. To recap, suffering is the number one tool. Cultivating beauty is the second. Uh, cultivating a more functional sense of self is the third. Finding a sangha that better supports and reifies that new sense of self. Ultimately, of course, to chuck it along with all other concepts. And five, being with the guru or being with the masters as often as possible. Six, using the senses to stay engaged with spiritual practice. Don't just practice from behind the glass screen of concepts. Get your hands dirty, right? And finally, practice syncretically. Now, the meta tool that I hope to close with, the overarching tool, the most important tool that one can convey in a lecture such as this is the following. It's a very powerful spiritual practice and it's in fact the perhaps only spiritual practice you need. 
Um, forgiveness on two levels. For others, most importantly, for yourself. Forgiveness. The ultimate tool that you have in your spiritual life is starting fresh, which is an exercise in forgiveness. As Avagrius says, prayer with a heart full of resentment is like filling up a pot with water from the well when the pot has holes. I butchered that. Avagrius says it beautifully. But you get the idea. Avagrius is saying, no prayer, meaning no contemplation, meditation, spiritual practice, will ever, mark our words, take hold in you if there are holes in your pot from which this water can leak. You must forgive. You must forgive your parents for whatever harm they've done to you. You must forgive your exes. You must forgive every grievance that has been done upon you. Even when you are justified in feeling resentment and feeling angry, there's no one that is being harmed more by that resentment or anger than you yourself. Forgiveness is an exercise, not in tolerance, like, fine, I forgive you. No, it's recognizing that everyone did their best given what information they had. And sometimes what information they had was so limited that their best expressed itself in pretty horrific things that they did to you. Forgiveness is accepting that they did that uh, and allowing that to have had happened uh, and loving them anyway. In other words, recognizing human frailty in others and seeing that they weren't perfect. And so it was okay. It's okay that they did that because they didn't know any better. So a good practice is to write letters of forgiveness. You don't have to send them. It's even more powerful if you do. You know what's funny? All those people that wronged you, the moment you forgive them, it's so funny, but the Lord smites them in a way. Why? Energy always recircles, right? So whatever was done onto you, by virtue of you holding on to that negativity, the moment you let it go, it returns to sender. <laughs> And you know, some people practice forgiveness in order to do this. <laughs> so I wanted to alert you. There definitely is a tradition of, of sorcerers who practice forgiveness because they know the Bible is the ultimate tool of magic. They know the Bible is, you know, if, if one read the Bible with the correct eyes, it is the most powerful book of magic there is. Jesus was a straight up warlock, right? He was, he could heal with his hands. Um, he knew all these things, all powerful things. And one of them is the power of forgiveness, and if you forgive, it returns all energy back to sender. It clears you from all other karmic blockages. And everyone else gets their comeuppance. So be careful, because once you forgive people, you'll see them get their just dues. Please don't be smug about that. Don't enjoy it. Because then you'll get addicted to forgiving in order to harm. And that's going to incur some more karma. <laughs> I just wanted to warn you that you'll see that happen in your life once you start to actually forgive. Yeah, I know, Jana. I know. <laughs> so no. <laughs> don't take no vengeance okay leave that to the divine sword no vengeance forgive your enemies turn the cheek give up the jacket clothes everything so uh forgive 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 others most importantly day to day you know you'll notice if you're angry at someone in your life like if they're like pissing you off it's because you haven't yet forgive forgiven them for something they did to you years ago so really reflect as to what that grievance was and write them a letter. Send it to them or at least just put it away. Maybe burn it in a fire. Symbolically, let everything go that you're holding on to. See, spirituality is about relaxing into what is already here for us. We cannot relax into this if we're tight, if we're holding on to things. Do your hip openers. If you're not sure if you're holding on to stuff, do your hip openers in asana class, you know? Find out where there's tightness. Open up that tightness. Feel that anger. 
Kali, you know, eat it up, eat up that suffering and then let it go. Let go your need for vengeance. Give up your need to be right. Let all righteousness melt into the joy of being. So forgiveness of others, that's a big deal, right? But the second one is harder to do and more important. Forgive yourself. Fabricio writes, if it is possible on your part, live at peace with everyone. Do not avenge yourself yourselves, beloved, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will keep burning calls on his Yeah, I know. This is why I had to use this disclaimer, by the way, because this is a teaching from the Christ. Yes, hip openers are the guru. And uh, remember, this is powerful magic. If you feed your enemies, if you serve those who have wronged you, oh, no greater power will be yours. So if you turn the other cheek, God will smite your foes and that can, you can be drunk on that power, you know? So please be careful. Let, let the world do what it will with those who have trespassed against us. But every day before you eat, say, thank you for this, my daily bread and forgive those who have trespassed against me. You know, they were doing their best with what they had, um, and I'm letting it go. now. So, so write that letter. Forgive everyone. Make a list of people um, and read it out loud. Mom, I forgive you. <laughs> Actually do it a couple of times. The first time you won't believe it, you know? Uh, remember in Goodwill Hunting? It's not your fault, Will. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And eventually he breaks through and Will starts to cry. That's a movie in the spirit. So repeat that. I forgive you, Mom. I forgive you, Mom. I forgive you, Mom. You know, in Ho'oponopono, the Hawaiian shamans we talked about earlier, they have a practice in Ho'oponopono where they say, I love you, I'm sorry, please forgive me, thank you. They rub their belly or they rub their heart and say, I love you, I'm sorry, please forgive me, thank you. And you repeat that and you will cry in 10 minutes. You'll cry, you know. So forgive others, but most importantly, forgive yourself. Forgive yourself for not being consistent. Forgive yourself for surrendering to disempowering narratives. Forgive yourself for your vices. Forgive yourself for the harm that you have done onto others because you were only doing your best with what you had at that time and you couldn't have acted in any other way than in the way that you acted. Hmm? So let go of all that you're holding, not against others, but against yourself. And unfortunately, you won't forgive yourself until you forgive others. You know, it's kind of like an inverse RuPaul. If you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love somebody else? You know, from the from the drag queen show. But um, RuPaul's Drag Race or something. So it's like that. If you can't forgive everyone, how the hell are you going to forgive yourself? You know, if you're holding everyone accountable for everything they did to you, what kind of attitude must you have for yourself? If you think everyone's a sinner, what does that say about you? So ultimately, start to see everyone as God, love everyone, you know, forgive everyone. And then hopefully, you will catch a glimpse of what self-forgiveness is like. Forgive yourself, you know, especially when you fall from the path, because you will. Today, we'll vow together to live a life in spirit, to act from a different place than from self propagation, self-preservation, and self-aggrandization. We will vow to live a life aligned with the highest ideals of purity, freedom, and joy. And in taking that vow, 
in living up to an ideal, given that it is literally the highest ideal in the human race, we will fall short time and time again. It is so tempting to beat yourself up every time you become inconsistent. There might be years in which you forget all of this. Some of you are waking up to this again after years, and some of you are reaching the end of your body's incarnation and thinking, if only I had more, forgive yourself. Let it all, let all of that go. You are exactly where you need to be at the time in which you are at it. Um, and maybe write a letter to yourself saying, I know how I acted to that partner. I forgive myself for doing that to them. I know how I was to my parents when I was 14. I forgive myself for doing that to them. You know, I know how I am with myself and I forgive myself. It's okay. It really is okay. So once I read in a beautiful document from the Golden Dawn, uh, one of the brothers was saying, why do you beat yourself up? You who are walking on a path whose point of origin is the recognition of human frailty. Isn't that beautiful? Kind of a Christian mystical idea. The idea that there's frailty. There's a kind of vulnerability to being human. Recognizing that, forgive yourself for succumbing to it. And then most importantly, pick yourself up again and continue. Because the ultimate obstacle to your spiritual path is feeling like you've fallen off the wagon. Feeling like you've lost it. You've, 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 you've made a mistake. You know, that you have too much karma. So just let that go. And start this day as if it was the first day of your life, you know, and, and it's a good day for it. So, uh, solstice, powerful time energetically. Some of you can feel it. So now as the pendulum turns, as we make this second descent through the yuga, um, all of you have a very special task. And that is to be in presence with as many people as possible. And your presence will awaken in them presence. Your life will start to radically change in these coming days. From sitting together, some of your lives have already started to do that. They've already started to unravel. Uh, in a way, we apologize for this bait and switch. Um, you were lured into this path. Some of you without fully understanding what would happen if you continued along this path. And for some of you, it's happening rather dramatically. But rest assured, you are not alone. This is the path. Uh, this is what it means to step into the fire. You are now being baptized in that fire that John the Baptist promised. Dis he had the disclaimer, like, I'm putting you in water. I'm the divine laundromat. But wait, soon there will come one who will baptize me in fire. And life is that Baptist, of course. So... Let us close here on a note of forgiveness. You know, forgive all that have trespassed against us and forgive us all our trespasses. Uh, let us start this moment now, born anew, born again, so to speak. Uh, this is the first moment of the rest of our lives. So we'll chant now thrice uh, the Mahamrittunjaya Mantra, beautiful mantra, extricating one from all the conceptual, unconscious, mechanical nonsense that keeps us trapped on the karmic wheel of samsara. This is a mantra that will powerfully renew you, severing the link between the you that is sitting here now with every you that has come before. They are dead now. Surrender them. Die to the past and be born into the present. So please feel free to take your pose of majesty, sitting with the poise and composure of the master that you are, relaxing into the perfection and attainment that is already yours, recognizing yourself and your own life to be the greatest teacher there is, and living by the only authority worth listening to, love, joy, spaciousness, and freedom. 
May you commit yourself now and always to living by the highest of ideals. May you live a life of inward renunciation, of purity, whatever that means to you, and selfless service. For verily I say unto thee, it is not me, but thee that acts. I can of my own self do nothing. May all actions flow through me, not by me. And like this, let us close. Om Shanti 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 Om Peace Peace Peace